Welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host, KB, and I would like to introduce you to industry professionals and people who successfully made their path to the video game industry. I hope that you will enjoy the podcast and get useful tips that will bring you closer to achieving your dreams. Now, let's get right into the podcast. Yeah, so uh, welcome to the GameDev.TV Podcast. You excited? Woo! Yeah! <laughs> Woo! Woo! All right, let's get right into it. So tell them a little bit about who you are. Sure, I'm Chris Delneon. Uh, sort of the the abbreviated version. I've been making games since the late 1900s, which is my <laughs> cutesy way of saying 1997. Uh, started as a hobbyist for about eight years. Uh, after I had kind of a zigzaggy career, giant companies worked Electronic Arts as a technical game designer, some console titles back in the Wii Xbox 360 era. Uh, went over to early hired company that became PopCap San Francisco, but wasn't while I was there. At the time, we made a thing called Playcrafter.com. Mm-hmm. People built games, drag and dropping on the internet, casual kind of web stuff. Uh, went on to make some indie iPhone games that did very well for some other businesses, less so for mine as a guy in my early 20s and uh, no lawyer at the time. Uh, went off to grad school, started teaching in university. I love teaching. I do not personally find the way I like to teach and the people I like to teach fit that context. Mm-hmm. And so since then, I've been teaching independently on the internet. Uh, and these days, I run hometeamgamedev.com. People around the world are building freeware games over like six weeks to six month periods with teams, with mentors. When they get stuck, me and my trainers help them. Uh, we've released over 100 games that way in the past five years. And attached wow. to that, we've got podcasts, video courses, YouTubes, uh, ebooks, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you got it all. Dang. <laughs> and I think you even said your original Forbes 30 under 30? Yes. Yeah, first generation of that, which, which I only point out because over the years, there have been all kinds of accusations about people who are like prioritizing getting on the list, people who are like going out of the way to try to spend money to get on the list. It hit us out of the blue, right? Mm-hmm. We literally, it wasn't a thing before they contacted me and were like, hey, and I'm like, is this legit? Uh, but anyway, that's all kind of a whole story in itself. I also help organize Indicate. I'm our alumni lead for that. Uh, backside connections, helping to network for those people. We have new people join that group. Who's in? Who you know? Who can who connect to who to try to help each other out? Uh, I've been networking aggressively for most of my career, like it's my job. Going to GEC since like 2006, I think. And so a lot of the work that I do is like, oh, I don't need an audio person right now, but I'll tell you who does. Jen over here, Thomas and Jenny should meet each other, and that's a lot of what I do out in the ecosystem as well. Wow, you've been doing a lot then. It's true. <laughs> and how did <laughs> yeah? How did all that start? Let's go like way back to the beginning. What did you do when you were younger? Did you sure. Play yeah. So I grew up in a small town in the Midwest. Uh, neither of my parents had any technical leanings, and so I was fully self-taught. Uh, but it, and actually, I think this worked to my benefit. And we kind of joke about like I don't necessarily recommend this because often I think this is a dead end where someone just steps too far into that rabbit hole and dies basically, and then like a band is gained moment forever. Yeah. But, but like as a kid. I had no adults to tell me what not to try to do. And so mm. I'm like just in the bookstore browsing and I see C for dummies and I'm like, I make better grades than C's. I guess I should be able to start with this. Not understanding, <laughs> right? That's like the software engineering standard to this yeah. day for like low level optimization stuff. And so I was at the time also like I, I had no money, no idea how to get anything. So even the books would be like, okay, you in, you know insert your graph.h Microsoft graphics library, mm-hmm. which I didn't have because I didn't have proper Visual Studio. I got some Borland compiler from a CD oh, in a no. book. So I went up copying code from other books for assembly routines to like plot pixels, play sound tones from my computer. Um, literally had no graphics engine library, framework, et cetera. Um, my early stuff was just like DOS trash remakes of uh, games. I like like Paratrooper or Snake, um, somewhere thematically similar to Qbert or Pac-Man or games I grew up with, um, but with my own twist on them. And so that very much kind of became to this day, uh, as a as a game designer, a lot of way kind of guide my people through is sort of a, a retroactive progression through history. We make kind of something that resembles structurally Pong. I'm careful to not say it's not Pong. There's no TM next to that. It's not an Atari property. It's this classic 
tennis style game that for mm, a decade sure, yeah. dominated the industry on custom microchips. Um, following from that, we do kind of a breakout type thing, then a racing tile based game. And it's up until we get to about a point of working on engine code uh, or, or 3D engines and stuff. That's where we start moving to Unity. Before that, I actually trained people anymore on JavaScript on Canvas, but uh, we mostly just use that as a way where like, if you don't code the line, it doesn't do it, right? Mm. There's there's none of this like, oh, shoot, I added the wrong component. I checked the wrong box. Mm. It's much more at a fundamental level of like making comparisons to do calculations for collisions mm -hmm. in a way that helps our fundamentals. And I find that when I do that as a foundation, people going into Unity or other engine choices, they get more mileage out of it because they got kind of more, it's a little less black boxed about what's happening mm -hmm. behind the hood to make collisions happen or stuff get fired off that kind of stuff yeah you focus on what's really important and then once they get that they can learn the other stuff under the hood well and, and i think about this too uh, an example i often draw back to is like a graphing calculator right we have these things that, mm -hmm. and like every math student eventually gets one typically at least in the, in the countries that we're in um mm -hmm. but like we don't therefore skip everything before algebra two we're not like oh because you have a graphing calculator well i do it by hand uh mm -hmm. there's still yeah. this necessity that to have a deeper understanding if you're like if your whole goal was I have to answer one set of assignments my whole life, yeah, use a graphing calculator. If you want to have a foundation in math and potentially a career in math, you sure as hell better do that stuff by hand first. Yeah. And most yeah. people I work with are doing this in the long haul. They're looking at five, 10, 15 year arcs of I want to keep making games. It's not like a I'll try this one weekend and see. Nothing wrong with that either for people who that's where they're at. Uh, but so consequently, a lot of our things are about, okay, if we take a step back because there's things that you want to do correctly if you're going to be trying to build a foundation that's going to outlive the current generation of when tools change, when processes change, when platforms, demographics change. And of course, I've been around long enough to see lots of those severe zigzags every few years, uh, sh just shedding people like fleas off a dog of people who are like, oh, I hate what games are now, or I, I like the old way of doing stuff. And nothing wrong with that either. But, you know, trying yeah, to figure out how to move forward, you know? Yeah. The past was great and we learned from it, but there's there's new things we could do. We have a chance it, to be even better. It, it dovetails. <laughs> so there's still the old stuff. There's also new stuff and just depends what someone's in it for. Mm-hmm. Now, I love what you said, though, about uh, like actually learning how to do the math, because it's funny as growing up, you're like, when are we ever going to use it? And even I was like, I don't know. But now it's like studying game development, doing programming, and all that stuff. It's like, actually, honestly, we use all that for everything. And yeah. if you want to do with games, you use all that math. You know, yeah. Honestly, you're creating your own world, so you need to understand physics. You understand like the way the universe works in a way. Same thing with like uh, game design theory and stuff like that. You need to understand politics, religion, all these things to craft a world that's believable and makes sense to people. Yeah, it, it very much, and I'm not at all sneaky about this, but some of my mm -hmm. agenda in life is that uh, part of why I went off to grad school was I was like, and, and I don't say this to mean anybody who sticks to the entertainment industry, but I was like, okay, I'm spending a lot of my brain energy on making what are like sophisticated toys and get nothing wrong with that. But mm -hmm. I was like, there are real problems people have. How do I help? Can I make educational games? And so I went back to grad mm -hmm. school kind of exploring, can I make some games that teach math concepts? And I'm just struggling at it, right? And, and like, everybody's like, oh, educational games should be better. And mm -hmm. there's a reason why they've plateaued like decades ago. It's a really hard problem to crack. Meanwhile, I noticed that on the side, the second game development college club I'd started, I started when undergrad, started in grad school. Those guys and gals and kids were, were staying up late at night to like teach themselves hard trig problems to make their car explode and spin cooler. And I was <laughs> like, wait a minute, like actually getting people into building their own games, they're learning all kinds of skills mm -hmm. for practical reasons, not because like, oh, I'm going to get a better grade on this assignment because like I genuinely want my thing to do something cooler and the answer between me and that is figuring out this thing that is a relatively complicated not even always technical problem creative problem design process mm -hmm. teamwork communication issue all these like life skills that i was like well that's my means of education <laughs> it's harnessing people's like love for video games and yeah. being like learn hard skills uh in my very first podcast guest like five years ago it was literally an 11 year old guy and uh he wow. had started programming at nine because he wanted like he loved minecraft so hard 
and he wanted to add spells to it. And the only way to do that at the time, these weren't yet a part of that game, yeah. was to mod it. And so mm -hmm. he's crawling through like Stack Overflow and adult APIs about Java <laughs> to just be like, how oh, do I gosh. make magic in Minecraft? <laughs> and again, it's, it's just harnessing this like this strong desire we have to make something cool happen, make it our happen our way, and being like, oh, the answer to that, learn you know these set of skills mm -hmm. that otherwise. But and again, like I've had sensible adults ask me like, Chris, wh when does anybody actually use the Pythagorean theorem? And I'm like, to get pickups. Um, and I'm sure there's yeah. other uses, but like, <laughs> there's one case that I run into all the time. Oh my gosh. I love that. And, and games are so much fun to play. It's just like, hey, you want to learn calculus? No, not, not this textbook. Here, make this game. And whatever problem or trouble you get into, uh, figure it out online. And I, you'll do it in a more engaging way than you would be like, oh, I got to go to the textbook. Yeah. And it's also, it's where the, some of my, also my, my pedagogical approach really also comes from my woodworking years. I realized it's sort of like this, all these things kind of shoved together because games had none of these backgrounds before the stuff, but mm -hmm. it was like, yeah, we were doing trig in there to figure out like how long or the angle to cut a board on stuff. And it was just very practical. Like I built this thing and I can show this result because I use this in a way mm -hmm. I'd go down the hall to my math class and there's no way fault against math teachers or anything, but like just so much more abstract. It's like, why am I solving for X? What, what is this yeah. for? How is this going to use be useful to me? And I even remember in, in, in undergrad, like a very high, su uh, high degree of qualification, super smart guy teaching matrices class. And I'm picking his brain after class as our professor. And I'm asking him some questions about how this stuff is used in like 3D mathematics for games and joints and stuff. And like it had never crossed the man's mind. He's a math department professor. And he was like, mm. I mean, I guess you could. You could, I could, I guess you could probably depict 3D positions or rotations with matrices. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that's the only reason anybody's forced to take this class from the CS department. Like, cause that's <laughs> yeah. what we need for the, like the 3D math class to go into the, uh, calc 3D to go into our like OpenGL hand renderer stuff. But oh, it just man. had never like, it was very much just like puzzle. And, and, and again, like a half engineer, I'm very much sensitive to that of mm -hmm. maintained pinball machines for years because there's a certain thrill to like, I'm solving the puzzle. But for so many more people, right, they need something more tangible to show for it of like, this is my trophy because I conquered this knowledge and I've shown myself I can do this. And what also just like a great building point that is for us. And I think a lot about uh, just kind of the Bob Ross attitude of things of like, it was mm. worth building because I created something. I expressed myself. I showed myself I can do this. And we get a lot of that too out of this in addition to, you know, checking some boxes for hopefully a little more comfortable or adept in some otherwise class that seems foreign to us in terms of our connection to it and our everyday mm -hmm. life. No, 100%. And then I love what you've been doing. You're saying you made your own approach. Now you're doing your own thing to teach people because honestly, the web, the classes you can take, the courses that can be built are so much better in design for people nowadays. Like, for instance, GameDesign.tv, I feel does a great job with the challenges where you actually learn the material and you're forced to apply what you learned. And I don't know, there's the nowadays, the more I learn online and the more I'm doing connecting with people like this, there's an excitement for learning. But back when I was in high school, it was like, why learn? Why just, just give me the answers and then I'll go on with my life. But I'm like, no, you don't have this like curiosity to understand why to, to do more to, cause then you can create. And now as a game designer, it's like, you can create anything you want. You just yeah. have to know how to do it. Well, but it, it, well, even this has also been so part of why my tension about teaching and, and, and again, this is, I'm always couching everything in disclaimers because at any given thing, I've got friends who I'd offend if I didn't. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not like anti-grad school level, you know, expense. When people kind of put all the chips on the table, so I'm going to get a career, career in this. That's why I'm going to school, this, that, and the other. For a lot of people I want to work with, they think of it much more like guitar lessons, karate class level of seriousness of like, here's a fun skill to have, mm -hmm. but I still have a job doing something else. And like, mm -hmm. that's plan A is continue doing the thing that earns my living and pays to support my family, et cetera. 
And it's very different from, so my first uh, console gig, probably 15 some odd years ago now, I had always, whenever I gave talks to, to kids, classes, students, whatever, about the, the joy of making games, it was like, oh man, anything out of your imagination you think of, like you find some way to do it, and then you find like, okay, there's some really tough problems to solve, but you can kind of even approximate human communication and storytelling, all that kind of stuff. And then his angle, when he was this lead designer, first lead designer I met, when he would go to schools, and he's at, these days, actually, he's a professor. But back then, he was a lead designer for EA Games, and he would go to schools, and his talk was like, all right, everybody, let's talk about the reality of being a lead game designer at a giant company. <laughs> you get to design Jar Jar Binks Racing. You didn't pick it. You may not like Jar Jar Binks. You may not like Phantom Menace or Star Wars. You may not like racing. Your job for the next four years is to be obsessed with those things, mm -hmm. to study those things, get to know the kind of people who care about those. You're thinking, okay, well, you know what? Uh, people like Jar Jar are probably younger, younger racing games, probably cart games. Now i got to play every cart game in the market. Now i got to think about how long should a session be based on like their level of attention and like these kind of different things. And it's a very different challenge to solve. And it's not a disrespect for that work, but it's so different from I can do anything I feel like, which is very much at the shoestring budget, free, you know, freeware on the side, moonlighting. Here's my cool, you know, weekend gig at bars kind of level of indie musician, as opposed to like this, I'm counting on this. This has to be an investment with ROI. You're in a very different calculus going on about like, okay, well, what's currently trending in the market? What's going to sell? How are these things monetized these days? Shoot, what, it's got to be ad-supported now? Oh, I'm sorry, it's got to be DLC now. Oh, never mind, that's mm -hmm. pivoted. These days, we've got a whole different model we have to adapt to because that space has been saturated by the people who have better investment. And it's just a very different game that we wind up doing from our side. And there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with it. It's the same way I, I liken to like, you know, if you're, you're doing anything professionally, it's different, right? I mean, you're a professional mm -hmm. soccer player, hot dog eater. Your relationship, that's very different than when somebody else is playing soccer, eating hot dogs. And obviously, it's true as well for games. We're like... Depends what someone wants out of it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's okay to play weekend soccer and not be like, you know, you're not legit unless you're in FIFA. That's not how that yeah. works. Yeah, no. Yeah. You don't have to be a master at every single thing you do. You just got to find the one thing that you're really good at and then use that to support your life. Now, what I want to get into is how how did you develop like, this mindset you have? Was that always there when you're younger? Just this like curiosity, the sense of like, I want to learn more, be more? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I think it was a mixture of when people joke about like, there's nothing to do in small towns. Uh, mm -hmm. Like my friend, I don't know, like that was what I did. I sat in my basement making games. I'm very much and, and, like people joke about sitting in the basement being that basement programmer that was totally me and like my hilarious. friends yeah and my friends would come over and like we would play the games i was working on they give me feedback and stuff and it, it also it's got these uh to me these rhyme like reminders back in early history of games before the stuff was even commercialized mit's space war type stuff a lot of what that was was hobbyist scene ex uh railroad club kids mm -hmm. who were just like making stuff and like people would play it together in the tournament and be like, oh, this should have mines in it. And they would add mines. This should have some sort of teleport key that add a teleport key. Mm -hmm. And it was very much that of like my friends, like Brad Gower and Monty and Brian Nagel would come over, whatever, we'd play the games. We'd be like, oh, what if there's a spaceship with a machine gun? And I'm like, yeah, now there's a yeah, spaceship with a machine it. gun. And it was just like that kind of energy was just very different from the, you know, again, like who is, I don't know, who's my audience? Who's my new graphic? How do I reach them? What's our price point, et cetera. It's a very different conversation. And it was never even assumed to be my job. I only went off to undergrad in comp sci. Because uh, I had no idea what I was going to do for my job, but I knew how to program, and that seemed to be of use to the to the markets. Uh, I, uh, even then, kind though, of a valuable skill. Well, so even then, I, I I had never had any formal programming training whatsoever, which is its own story as to like my struggle through that space. With it. they very much, and this was a a, a a well like well respected CS program, but very theoretical on the side of like when people mm. joke about the whiteboard interviews at Google, like that's like seventy five percent of the education in a school like this was like hand waving proofs on the whiteboard about like this 
thing. And it was like, when they gave me a programming problem, I would just chew through it like a rat just panicked out of the room. Um, when they gave me some sort of math proof, I was just struggling to get like partial credit Ooh, to get myself out of there. I um, hate math proofs. It's just not where I was at. And this is all it, when even this is, I think is another thing that, that leads to people having an aversion to when they're like, oh, I don't know if programming, if that's the approach that's going to work for me for game Because I'm not a math person. I'm like, I'm not either. That never got in my way because it's very different. And I, I liken it again to, to carpentry where like, okay, do you know how to nail a board to another board? Do you know how to like use a router? Okay, well, now you have to do it like 100,000 times. And, and it's very much like in games, like most of the math is arithmetic. Mm-hmm. Most of the math, we got some addition, we got some multiplication. Every now and then, like maybe like up to three times in a giant project, there's like a, ooh, I'm gonna have to Google how to do this very bizarre, tricky, yeah. unusual thing. But usually even then there's like, oh, there's, there's some fancy answer that I've actually solved for 10 games before. I'm gonna go steal that code from last time I worked exactly. this out and not think about it anymore. Yeah, it's it's just a different relationship with that stuff. But but even in undergrad, I arrived there thinking I'd find other people from around the world who also were making games like me. I found I had an unusual head start. And again, this is luck. This mm-hmm. is not to give myself credit. Of my peers, there were who were better software engineers than me, better mathematicians than me. Absolutely, I had an enormous head start on them technical-wise. And so that was my one of my posters behind me is my first poster from that first club of realizing like, hey, if I can help ramp these people up and get them started and get them doing this, like it's going to help them. It'll help me. I'm going to have people to work with. I'm getting to the point where I'm kind of hitting the limit of what I can do alone and still finish things. And that then became the pattern it took on to my grad school organization. And then the current business I run is sort of modeled 3.0, 4.0, arguably that same kind of pattern. So that's amazing. So you saw that people weren't really good technically and you were like, let's make a club out of this. And then I'm going to teach you guys how to be more technical so we can build well, something together. And not even technical. And again, I, I like to stress like these, some of these people were literally better programmers than me uh, yeah. by any definition of the word, but they, the game development. I mean, one of the things that I also love about it is in the same ways it gives creative people a reason to have to try to wear the technical hat. It gives technical hat people a reason to try to like realize not everything is just some sort of algorithm where if I do it mm-hmm. correctly, it's going to work. There's all these soft trade-offs we have to make where like to get a, project out in any sensible amount of time on a deadline you like strategically and consciously cut some corners prioritize some stuff do some things in a way that's not elegant but gets it done for our use case understand our constraints and it's just a very different set of mind space we're like okay well this will not work if you're designing satellite communication systems for the military don't do this there but mm-hmm. if what you're doing is like all right this is nes game i really like but what if it had you know like a gauntlet that fired fireballs and it's like all right well there's some ways we can cut some corners on that and it's going to be mm-hmm. fine and like yeah so that becomes part of that that calculation but very much and so this is a group that kurt barrington had technically had chartered before i got there so i sort of showed up in a meeting they hadn't made any games yet and a lot of where i came in on there was integrating creating that process around how we're setting these up how we got the group kind of through a warm-up phase uh how we had our teams kind of hang together and that group still operates to this day so i just helped run indicate a week or two ago um running their networking sessions we had people in those sessions who were like current or recent members and alumni from that group from like 15 years ago that are what? still in that's in that ongoing community. And yeah, VG Dev's also still running at Georgia Tech. Um, all those groups are still running now, hands off. And you started um, all of them. Yeah, trying to leave a trail of this stuff. Uh, and it's in the amazing. process. Well, in the process too, like when I was first starting this current thing, as part of my like, okay, well, I have two data points. I know I'm not the only ones. Anytime we think we're the only one doing something, we're fooling ourselves, right? Oh, it just yeah, means that course. we haven't found them. Mm-hmm. So I, I, as part of my work, had reached out to, I was given a GDC talk about college game development clubs in similar communities maybe not in colleges Mm -hmm. interviewed like a half dozen or more of these from different years different orgs different things around the country i found through the internet and then like put a little ebook together but studied a bunch of those gave a talk on those and so very much have been trying to like and eventually discovered some of them started from copying our format they had read like my blog articles about how these college groups worked and i'm like yes great 
uh, part of what I love about these kind of communities is that no single one is going to be the answer for every human on earth. That includes my current mm-hmm. thing of like, you know, if a hundred thousand people want to do it, that it's going to be a very different experience. And that's part of, we, even out of our current group, for example, we fragment it into to particular sizes of communities uh, to make sure people can get a sense to know each other. They have a sense for who else is there. For me, it's the difference between when I was at electronic arts and it'd be like, I have no idea what that corner of the floor of my team does. And uh, versus when I went off to the startup, I was like, there's four people in the room. I know what John's doing here. I know what Matilde's doing here. I know what David's doing here. And there's just that, I, I like that feel in a way that as someone who's partly in it, just because I love to do it is important to me in a way that's different than like my relationship to just the overall project or the overall pattern or the overall platform or something. And so, you know, I think it's going to be a giant spider web of communities of people who are working together. And we already do have that. It's just a matter of like a lot of them are kind of hidden or not as connected yeah. to each other as they can and should be. No, gotcha. That's why it's good to promote these type of communities to give a place for people to meet like minded people and to grow with them and to face challenges together. Because again, like, but you and I, we, we feel like we're the only ones, but there are so many people out there who just trying to do the same thing. And that's yeah. why we're all part of these great communities. Yeah. And, and, and it very much is a, is a, a mattress factory or not a mattress factory, mattress store effect of Udemy used to explain like, okay, well, you know, you want to do a course and you're looking at Udemy and you're like, oh, I don't know, somebody's already teaching a course like that, but somebody else wants the version that's more formal or less formal, that's shorter or longer. Mm-hmm. That's about this platform or that platform. Uh, and, and it's, it's like each one's going to be a different fit for somebody as to what's their risk level, what's their time level, what's their, this, that, and the other. And yeah, I think that's a, it's a good thing to have more options for more people to find a place that fits them. And, and a lot of what I do, so uh, like I literally just last night with a call with Rick and Tim Ruswick, uh, Rick Davidson and Tim Ruswick, who are two game yeah. dev TV uh, trainers, teachers. And like a lot of what we do out of between our networks, and of course, Tim's also involved with Game Dev Underground, his other thing. Mm-hmm. Rick's been game career coach for many years of his life before Game Dev TV. A lot of what we do is someone comes to any one of us and I'm like, actually, I'm probably the wrong guy to talk to, but Tim, Tim over here. Go talk to Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? Actually, you're looking for probably Rick's probably more the guy I want to talk to for what you're looking for and vice versa. Because again, it's like, I'm, I'm not trying to be a one size fits every human being on earth. I'm trying to be a, here's a particular set of things I'm the right answer for. Mm-hmm. And, and this is also when I first started, before I was running this current group, I was doing one-on-one training. I still got about a half dozen of these clients kind of once a week, hourly, like guitar lessons kind of things. I used to answer anybody's questions about anything. They were paying me for my time. I was helping people with Python and C++ and SDL and SFML and DirectX and literally any given thing in the universe. But at some point I was like, okay, I'm going to hyper-specialize. I do JavaScript HTML5 Canvas and I do Unity C Sharp. That's it. And if somebody has a question about one of those, I've answered that question now for hundreds of people. And off the top of my head, before they finish the question, I'm like, here's four answers and like some pros and cons of each. And it's just much easier to help people efficiently and help them better through that like kind of micro-specialization versus trying to be the you know, I'll, I'll talk the about anything. Guy. And, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so learning how to turn away that work and be like, I don't have to answer everyone's question in the universe. Other people have the answers to that. I can help you find those people sometimes, but you know, it's it's not an efficient use of my time or anybody else's for me to be doing some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to be self-aware because that's another thing too. You can get so focused on a lot of things. Like, hey, I want to study all game development, and you can get lost in all the courses. But it's like find the one thing and focus on it. And there's people. There's people who feel they're like, oh man, I gotta make a, I gotta make a good thing in every genre. And I'm like, what designer are you thinking of? Because Miyamoto didn't do that. The Kojima doesn't do that. Will Wright didn't do that. Any given one of these people are like, there's a tone, there's a scale, there's a, there's maybe a couple genres that they splash around in. Even like the most extreme examples of history, they're still like, nah, pretty much like figured out their niche and they just, you know, own that. And, and you know, it's obviously at that scale, but even among the indies, it's likewise, I, I think recently I was just seeing Zactronics doing some like war sim stuff and it's still, it's very much got the usual Zactronics kind of flavor to things, but 
you know, there's a certain there's strategy. There's these things that they've kind of figured mm -hmm. out. Okay, here's the space we're going to try to build Dominion in. I've just been playing uh, Bastion, not Bastion, Hades by the Bastion people. Mm -hmm. uh, and Amir Rao, founder of Supergiant, former coworker of mine from back the ELA days. And that's the thing where, like, very much all their games from, like, I'm going to say this uh, half jokingly, like, <laughs> if my mom looked at them, she'd be like, Chris, these are the same game. And, like, we recognize these are very different things. They do things very differently. They're doing fascinating, mm -hmm. cool stuff in the design space. But they've figured out here's a kind of game we are just going to, like, put our lasers on and mm -hmm. continue to get better and better and better at in a way we can build progress on it. And, uh, you know, I think there's value in experimentation, there's value in exploration. But the reason why you try different flavors of ice cream is to figure out which one to keep getting every time you go back. And, exactly. like, I love you're that, narrowing yeah. down that choice. And so to, to expand on that, how would somebody really find that thing that they should specialize in? Yeah. I, so the ice cream just keep trying new things? Uh, I mean, you got to try on shoes to see if they fit. I think the human brain, a lot of my model too, for as a, I'm a rapid prototyper by, by sort of professional specialization is like our brains are really bad at what's going to work or what we're going to like. They think they know that if mm. it works, it's going to be different than why we think it's going to work. And until you've modeled some stuff, until you've done some sound effects, until you've done some code, until you've done some design, until you've worn the producer hat for a while, it's impossible to say. No one can tell you. Like, your family members can't know you well enough, too. People who've been in that career their whole lives can't. You just got to try some stuff. The other hard part to that, to be fair, is that the first part of anything is, like, the worst. The absolute steepest hill curve imaginable is, like, learning the chords for the first time or how to hold your fingers kind of equivalent. And mm -hmm. so some of it's involved a bit of a slog of getting over to the point of like, okay, well, this could be fun for somebody if this kind of is what they feel like they've got a knack for. And you got to kind of, you know, splash around the spaces. This is also a case where obviously there's some privilege or advantage to if you're working either part-time on the side to try this out, if you're starting younger in life or so on, where you've got kind of some time to splash and thrash and experiment, you're not feeling that pressure of like, I need to get straight to what's my commercial skill set, which is obviously a different set of pressure, but uh, I mean, I think that's obviously a kind of pressure we put on all kinds of people, <laughs> at least in this country between like the ages of oh, wow, around yeah. plus or minus 19 are like, pick your major. And they're like, what? And we're like, what are you doing for your life? <laughs> and, and, and that's also where the other kind of reminder for that and applies here too, is that many people start in something and it can be a fine place to start. And then very quickly within three to five years, wiggle, wiggle all over the place, do something else where they're like, oh gosh, once I got in there and saw how things operate on a whole different scale, I found actually I really love working with these kind of people. I love this different side of the craft that mm -hmm. once I got exposed to. And that's, of course, where online resources, online communities, online courses, et cetera, have made it easier than ever for people to kind of explore those pivots in privacy. And this is another thing that's important to me about part of why my video courses exist at a separate layer from my home team, like one-on-one -on -one mentoring, support group, kind of uh, team collaborative project structure stuff, is I think people want to be able to try on those shoes sometimes privately in case they don't fit so they don't feel embarrassed about like, shoot, I, you know, I told, I announced to all my friends, I'm in, I'm in just an example, an art major, or I'm going to school to be a programmer or whatever. And if that doesn't work out for them, a certain amount of shame tied up in like, mm. oh, I had to change my mind. I was wrong. I guessed wrong. I, my parents had a certain picture of what I was going to do with my life. And now I'm wrong. And what I love about the online stuff is that for a great extent of it, people can like try it and nobody can know. They don't have to say a darn thing until they've kind of like it's figured true. out like, I do like this. I do, I do fill this in. And I think for a lot of things, it's been a nice thing for people to be able to online look up, am I wrong about this? And, mm -hmm. and kind of the sit there and now. think about that separate from, shoot, I have to ask someone who's going to laugh at me for even asking the question. Yeah, I, I hate that that's like a thing too, that people feel this sense of like judgment that they made the wrong choice, that they're like, or that they just completely lost it, that they made a whole three, uh, 180. And it's like, our lives are very complex. We don't know what we want half the time. And then when we do figure it out, 
eventually later on we're like ah maybe maybe this is better or you, you start to learn things so i think everybody should always have an open mind especially between the ages of 20 and 30 because you're gonna experience so many different things and then you'll finally find what you like and older we've got people who in our group are like in their 50s and their 40s who are like just now realizing there's another side to doing this that, that they do have a knack for because and, and yeah this is everyone's situation is different maybe they didn't have the opportunity to didn't have a chance mm. to uh last time that they looked into this was way out of their scope um, a lot of us have worked with people on is that people who like when they last looked into making games in 1999 or when they last learned making 3D models in 1995, the tools are way out of budget. The, the the size of engineering team necessary to pull it off were staggering and trying to help them realize like these barriers have been fortunately trampled down by the masses in a positive way that, you know, whenever we're talking about, oh, it's hard, it's a saturated market, et cetera, from the commercial side, that's because so many people can do it. And if anything, it's just because games are catching up to where we've always been on like any human being plus or minus can kind of write a story or like at least sing in the shower level. And now there's a question of like, if you want to do it as your job, well, yeah, you got to set yourself apart somehow as a singer, as a writer, as a poet, mm -hmm. as a painter. But if what you want to do is paint and sing and write and tell stories, anybody can kind of like have access to the ways to do that. And games are getting closer there. We're not there yet, but we're closer to there than we were 10, 20 years ago of more people have a pen. Great. Mm -hmm. And if what you want is just to, to tell stories and make stuff and try things and do stuff, there is so much less getting in your way than there used to be of like, well, unless you happen to know Tom who lives in Texas, you have no way to sell your product to people. Or unless you know, you know, and, and that was also like, unless you were selling it, no way to be able to distribute it was just a genuine problem that like even so we just had Chris Crawford on our podcast, a uh, home team game dev one. And like, he was taught like, in his early career, they would be like selling discs and Ziploc bags at Radio Shack level of like that was distribution well. in the early indie era. And obviously he found a publisher and so on, but like this was things indie games existed for, and then it kind of went into slumber for decades during which it was like, unless you're getting a overseas piece of plastic printed off a factory, hand screwed in, put into a cardboard box, shipped overseas in a cargo ship, paying retail workers to stand their minimum wage to make sure no one steals it. You can no way to distribute your games for a long time, except for some tiny sliver of audience who like could afford a personal computer in the nineties or something, which is... Mm -hmm. Sounds normal now, but was not as much the oh, percentage yeah. of population back then. Yeah, it's just crazy how things have changed, and now people can anyone can literally make a game and publish it on like Steam or or like the Amazon Play Store, Google Play, even Itchio. That one too, you could just literally post it and get feedback, get people to like donate you. It's insane. It, I love it. It has been a great fit for us, in part because it's got the zero cost of like we're not having to pay to renew a license on it. We really find for us, it works well. We There's this thing called itch, Itch.io's collections where so mm -hmm. like when our project leads release a project, we will often the lead will upload it to their itch account so they can make updates to it. They can change mm -hmm. the stuff if they want to. I just collect all those into our like 100 release home team games, directly link it to theirs. And then that way it's got both ways. And meanwhile, we have other members who like out of our, I don't know, 50 some odd people who we call them game changers. They're involved more than two thirds of the weeks of a quarter. Uh, they can make a custom collection that's like, okay, I worked on these eight games that are on itch. They link directly to the same ones. They don't have to re-upload stuff. They don't have to like mm -hmm. set up a new GIF or a new animation or a new cover image. They can make a little blurb next to each one of like, I joined this project about halfway through. It was running to these programming problems. Here's how I fixed it. I also did these sound effects in these levels. And like that kind of thing just works so much better for the kind of community that we operate than something like Steam, than something like, you know, app stores. There's nothing wrong with those for what they are. But the other thing, and, and there's pros and cons to this too, is that... uh uh, I, I, I meet with a lot of people who are internationally working internationally during Indicades networking time. We have people from like four or five continents at once, all chatting, which is I love about the online Zoom because mm -hmm. you can't even tell if someone will tell you where they are because people with accents could be anywhere. But like the United States makes starting a business so easy 
Uh, so cheap, so trivial. You can accidentally become an entrepreneur in the United States, and many people do. Uh, and again, there's pros and cons <laughs> to this. We say that, yeah. Because occasionally, in the same way as like, okay, well, it gets creative people learning technical skills, and people learning creative skills, and all this stuff. It also gets people of any of these backgrounds accidentally having to learn business skills because they're like, oh shoot, I just put a ninety nine cents on this just to see. I just stuck an ad integration just to see. I connected to pay what you want just to see. Suddenly, congratulations, you run a business in the United States of America. Uh, I hope you're like figuring out your quarterly estimated taxes. Hope you have an accountant. Hope you're meeting with a lawyer about making sure you're like handling some things correctly. Because if you're not, there is potentially liability issues that are bigger mm -hmm. than the no money you've put into this yet. Um, yeah, so there's pros and cons to that. But that is a nice thing I like about itch as a distribution platform. You can do it without having to like have an LLC formed and also mm -hmm. not be taking a weird chance. Because the thing people forget when they don't have like business insurance and they are again accidentally running a business is let's say, I don't know, Sam over in Iowa, just to like make up an example here. And I'm from Northern Missouri, so I'm not picking on Iowa. Uh, but like Sam over in Iowa, he, you know, he has some computer problems the same night he tried your game. He says, your software bricked his computer. Now it probably didn't. Your thing ran in the browser. What are the odds? It's basically impossible. It's very sandboxed. However, do you want to go to court and fight it out with Sam? And if you do, do you have like the means to do that? And that's where business insurance, reliability, et cetera, becomes a factor for things mm -hmm. that are mass distributed to strangers to run on their machines. And this is again, where like, if we're not careful, we are running a business by accident, which I like that it helps people learn some entrepreneurship skills. The downside is it also raises people's liability in ways that they were not going into eyes open mm -hmm. about what they're getting on board for. You know, honestly, whether it's with game development or even just like the self-help industry, nobody really talks about that. I've never once heard anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. Well, and, and, and the part of why these things come up for me is because like, so as in, so Indicate in particular loves to celebrate international diversity representation games from all over the world and so on. One of the challenges we're always kind of looking at, and this is me personally, this is not like Indicate as an organization, but me is so like, I'm always, okay, why is this the case? Because we have members as well on home team in like 19 time zones, which is a point of pride for us. But the indie scene in the US is very different than it is elsewhere. There are absolutely indie games coming elsewhere in the world, but like East Asia, Africa, South America, many parts of Europe, there are again exceptions, uh, do not have as much stuff. And obviously there's some differences of like Head Start or industry or other stuff. Part of what I also figured out from just talking to some of these people is that in a lot of these countries, to start a business requires so much legitimate process and expense and being able to demonstrate to the government like we are going to be able to responsibly take care of the salaries predictably for an ROI. We have a strong business case. We've secured a business loan, yada, yada. That in the US, none of those safeguards are in place, which again is like part of why we wind up with also like people who are just absolutely wrecking their savings, doing stuff mm. they frankly probably would not be advised to do. Sometimes taking people with them on that boat that's just destined for the iceberg and like, oh my God, terrifying. But we sometimes forget that like we just take for granted here, like, oh yeah, that what do you mean, indie games? Uh, and, and there's a very particular thing that that means here in terms of commercial risk occasionally in the US. And with it elsewhere, I think there are pros as well as cons. Um, people are sort of like, well, you can keep it as a hobby. You can do this on the side. There's, But like the chance of turning into a business is basically until you've proven so much traction that it's not so risky anymore, which is really kind of a smart idea anyway, if you're going to do it as a business. But many other places in the world, they don't necessarily have the same accidental oops, because it might be like several grand or you know, five digits of money mm -hmm. uh, moving around between lawyers and government and paperwork and to, to, to start a proper institution to do this stuff, at which point you're not doing it unless you've secured publisher connections and you're distributing to a known market and you're working with professionals who are vetted through a proper HR process, yada, yada, as opposed to like me and Sally from down the street or something, which mm -hmm. certain energy to it and worth doing, but it's just going to be a different level of investment risk, uh, yada, yeah, yada.
How do you think we can solve that problem? Do you make courses where they talk about it at the end? or I, or... I, I mean... One of the tough things about being a teacher is that obviously you can't teach them unless they're like willing and interested in learning it. Right. This is the, this is the thing. And it's also like when I used to, a lot of what I used to ask in my podcast episodes was like, I had this fascination with what I call Icarus project. Mm -hmm. And that's where somebody takes on something way out of scope and just straight up, just, just craters, right? Like doesn't release or releases, but they spend so much money on it that they will never see a return on, not even like not even a dent in what they spent trying to like pay animators and pay sound people and buy yeah, music no. and get assets and stuff. Not even a just scratch. And many people don't recover from that. They never come back to games. They swear. They're like, I can't afford to keep making games. Cause the only way I know how to do it is to spend money and just hemorrhage my savings, which I am out now. Thank you back to my day job. But like, okay, well, part of what I've tried to like, I used to ask kids, can we even avoid people doing that? Cause there's plenty of articles, plenty of stuff. I would write them. I would give talks to GC. Plenty of people would about like, how to not do that because good Lord, please don't do that. But the people who are around, when you ask them like, you know, Hey, did you have one of those? A lot of them like, Oh hell yeah, I absolutely did. Here's how I bounced back from it. Or here's how I survived it. Or like, thank heavens. It was when I was a sophomore in college or whatever, as opposed to like, oh, I went back to the studio of 30 people and lay them all off or something. And and so for me, part of what I've tried to figure out, I was like, how do I make it survivable to kind of like overscope ourselves so that we can recover so we can keep doing it after that. Cause I've figured out, I don't, I can't actually successfully steer people away from like overscoping themselves because until they've shot themselves in their own foot, they won't believe anybody else. If anything, they're going to hang on to that. Like, well, the moment someone gets out of my way, I'm going to make that thing. And it's going to be incredible. And so part of what I've, what I've set people up for is like, we've got our release dates. We always release things on time for the hundred plus games we released at a home team. And that's point of pride for us. But like, basically, if they've overscoped it for the time that they gave it, for the energy they were able to commit to it, and the means of production available to them and so on, then like, they get to see the outcome. And like, there's a game, it exists, I had to make some compromise in my vision, next time I can recalibrate, but there will be a next time. We also prove from dragging on indefinitely. And this is where one of the early lessons come from my first college group was that we used to allow people to, to not finish a thing, pick it up the next semester. And now, so our newer approach for contrast is like, you're still going to release the thing on time. We might have to make like a, you know, coming soon, rest of it. But like, it's a self-contained, releasable, strangers can play it, explains how to play it, et cetera. Uh, and so, but like semester two, they would drag on the same project. Don't we just figure out which, because I don't want to make anybody feel called out. I think they've even probably sank it off the website to hide this shame in history. Took it on to a third <laughs> semester. And each time it didn't get better. It was so fundamentally broken from the outset about its performance, about its concept, about its implementation, about its mechanics. Adding more wasn't going to fix it. Yeah, Cycling no. more wasn't going to fix it. And it's it, and it was just like, you just have to move on from this. Like, lick your wounds. Try something different. This was not the one. And this is, again, partly where, like, we talk about, like, well, why don't you just spend more time on one project instead of, like, experimenting stuff? It's probably because, like, more time doesn't always make everything better. No, we like to kid ourselves and be like, well, you know, if we spend enough time, it's going to be great. False incorrect unless you include in that time literally starting all over with something else entirely different in which case obviously we're discussing not just more time on the same thing there is a point at which in a commercial studio and i will again be unspecific about which particular game i did overhear executives discussing like this will be like maybe a low 70s metacritic at best no matter how much more money we throw at it we just need to get seen out the door and move on to the next thing yeah and there's absolutely the learner version of that which hopefully craters fewer careers than like the business version of that. But it's a it's a risky industry. This is also where I think but it also catches people off guard is that disproportionately we are, uh, I don't know if over-indexed is the right expression, but uh, disproportionately out of the scale of people who are making stuff on their own, it is a little programmer heavy. Obviously it's not to say all work is programming. Everyone has to be a programmer. It's none of that kind of thing, but it is partly because 
they're the ones who don't have to find someone else to make a case to like, hey, implement this concept design, you know, I'll help produce it, whatever, which that happens to do sometimes those are great. But mm-hmm. it's over, it, we have a disproportionate amount of people who come from a background in which, like I, I kind of alluded to earlier, in an engineering discipline, we learn if I do the right maths and I check it all, the bridge will stand, the building won't collapse, like the, the calculation will execute in underperformed time mm-hmm. as promised. And we forget that like this is a, both a business and a creative industry, which mm-hmm. are two very risky things that right in business, it's very much like in the norm for business. This also destroys people trying to like apply for jobs to things, which is fundamentally a sales business activity yeah. where in business, you can do everything right and get like 5% yield, 3% yield, mm-hmm. 2% yield. And there's a classic thing of, okay, if I get, if I make 40 cold calls and I get one sale, how do you get three sales? You make 120 cold calls. Like that's business. Suck up the rejection. Keep doing it. That's how oh. you make sales, et cetera. And granted cold calls, old model business. You got the idea. Same thing, but like at that point, we're like tweaking for like, how can I go from 2% to 2.5% yield? That would be huge success in business side. But in games, it's a business where again, you can do everything right and still have it fail. And likewise, it's a creative industry where part of why that publishing layer exists for as many as there are downsides of working with publishers. And I can certainly speak to no shortage of negatives from those side of things too, from years doing that. But like they exist to help mitigate that risk. Same as they do for the book industry and the music industry. Most things don't make back their costs. Like six out of seven, we're talking, maybe more than that. Six out of like most things don't. What they're trying to count on is try to average it out so that the ones who are hits are enough of a hits to offset the losses in a way that for any given individual or studio, they're taking enormous risks if they're trying to shoulder that themselves in a way that we've also, I mean, we've got Indies who got there. I think Klitsky wrote a blog article about like, he's been doing this long enough for decades. He basically shelters that risk himself of counts on mm. most of his projects, won't earn back what he spent on them. It's a small fraction that he hopes can be enough of a hit to offset those. But if someone's counting on like my first game, my second game, my third game, not just, it's so the exception, not the rule that that pans out for them, that usually we just never hear from them again. And they just, you know, quietly exit from games, which is sad because I love games and I'm tired of seeing it uh, have that place in people's lives as opposed to like being able to continue to explore and create, meet new people through it and do all these exciting, great things with it. That's why I think a lot of people should read books like Blood, Sweat, Pixels and just really like talk to people in the industry because then they get more of a realistic view of like what's going to happen. Because again, everybody thinks oh, I'm going to make the next Fortnite and that's likely not going to happen. Was Blood, Sweat, Pixels, I'm trying to remind myself, that's not the one that was uh, about the Stardew Valley stuff, was it? Yeah, start, yep. Yeah, then, so uh, uh, I, I will specifically say, like, I dislike that one. Uh, and I, I dislike it in the same way as I, I dislike Indie Game, the movie. And this is not because I dislike the developers or the authors, for that matter. It's just, it's the necessary, it's like survivorship bias effect to the extreme. Uh, we're telling these stories because these are the games people care about. And again, I respect that's how you have to make content to make people watch mm-hmm. and care about the thing. Uh, if you had drawn straws for any given handful of indies to tell stories of for Indie Game, the movie, or for that matter, for Blood, Sweat, and Pixels... Um, most of the cases will not have been the ones where, like, well, I'm glad they went to such extremes of damaging their health or mortgaging their house yeah. or doing other things. Most of the time, it does not pay off. And uh, we don't get to hear them talk from the stage because they left. And it is so many more of those people that, to me, I, I worry that there is a focusing effect that people, and I, I, as a person who works with beginners, I have people come to me and have for years who are like, hey, I'm trying to get out of debt, so I'm trying to make games. And I'm like, incorrect. <laughs> I, I would be irresponsible to treat this as something as a good strategy for that. That is so rare to how this sort of thing works. And it's it's a frustration. But again, I don't blame anybody involved in the process. I don't blame the developers. I don't blame the fans of the work. I don't blame the authors of the work. It is necessary to like tell the story that people will pay attention to. But it's just, it's necessary got the survivorship bias 
effect built in of we only see the ones that did well enough to be worth telling the story of. And, and I also, this is, this also goes back to me for like the um, things change so rapidly in our, in our field. Uh, the old books on masters of doom, maybe where it was like, you know, the John Carmack team and stuff. And I think he's literally got a quote in there of like, you know, we just made whatever we wanted to. And then like, that was, that was how we reached our audience. Cause we knew that people like us, this works when you're the only human being on planet earth who can make a first person shooter. When not a single other person in the entire globe has the skills and technical know-how and proficiency and access to technology and expense, et cetera, to pull off a real-time first-person shooter. That worked. I also had the idea of like, what if you shot zombies with a shotgun in hell? Yeah. As soon as everybody else can do that, you have to do a very different thing to be responsible about it. And, and, and part of why, again, I don't blame anybody in that process is like, that was true when he said it. That was true about his life. That was true about his path. But I think also we get a lot of, uh, there's a famous, semi-famous panel from years ago at GDC about like all advice is bad. And several people on the panel were basically like, they realized they've been giving advice for years based on what worked for them. And that like, that is not the same. So like my expertise is very much, it's less about here's what worked for me in 1997. And instead it's about here's like five people who've gone through our courses, taken our approach, use our systems, shown you how they've gotten results. Now they're getting paid for contract gigs. And now they're making education professionally. Now they're like got a job at a thing. But even they're talking about how rare that is, as opposed to like, more importantly, the first barrier was they wanted to make games. Other things hadn't worked for them. Now they're making games. And like, Mm -hmm. this is our first scratch that off the list. And more importantly to me, at a level of investment and risk where they don't feel like, shoot, I, I quit the day job. I burned, I burned through four or five digits of savings where it's just like that is such a, a norm that it causes, again, kind of, kind of casualties in a sense of people who don't know how to do it again when it doesn't go their way because they were really hoping on like, well, you know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll super meat boy for us or whatever. And it's just like, it will not. Those people had been making games for 10, 15 years. Um, I think among us, I recently, I tweeted semi, I've been strong my tweets right behind me for reasons, <laughs> but I had one about like, I think the, um, not among us fall, fall guys, people have fall made guys, like 115 yeah. games since like 2003 or something. And nobody cared at all about any of those, but a lot of those actually included stuff that was not popular to the general public, like general web games, casual games, ports of stuff, things for Sega stuff where their brand wasn't on it. Work that got them paid that put them in a position to responsibly take this risk and have these connections and have access to that kind of core talent to build from. And when we see those, usually there's, there's a long, quieter trajectory that's very different from the like one person soloing stuff or than the just like had an idea, took some courses, now doing the thing. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what the objectives are. Yeah, but yeah uh, I just I get very, very sad about, um, again, those people come to me sometimes about like, oh, I saw something again in the movie and I'm like, oh no. Um, <laughs> oh, I, love no. All the, I, I love all those people, but you have, you have a uh, misrepresentative sample set. Uh, it's also, it was a time in history, right? We're literally, in, I, I made iPhone games during this time. We're like, I would just make a thing. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so day one iPad was new. I walked over to the Apple store. I live in San Francisco at the time, bought an iPad, went home, made a couple apps on it. iPad paid for itself pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. That was, that was a thing you could do in like 2009, whenever this was. Yeah. These are so long gone. That is not how that works. <laughs> you are competing at a different scale of number of people doing this stuff who have better tools than I did. And it's just not really what happens as the, the plan A anymore. So like, is this a conversation you have with people like before they take your courses or? Yeah, so, that- so it, it, it varies. I mean, so part of what happens is it's also part of why my, my course codeyourfirstgame.com exists is people used to come to me and be like, all right, Chris, I want to make Call of Duty meets Minecraft with special oh, features I can't talk yeah. about because NDA. And I'm like, go take my few hour course in which you're going to make a black and white game with rectangles that bounce. And if you still have the patience to have a conversation, I'll, I'll, we'll discuss 
the realities of your situation and what you're looking at in your time frame and so on. Mm-hmm. Most of them I never hear from again. It is a filter on like, oh my God, this is hard. This is yeah. slower than I thought. This is more difficult. I can see why maybe my next game will not be Call of Duty meets Minecraft with these special features that are hidden behind NDA. There is some filter built into that of like, aha. Uh, but yeah, it is very much a thing of like, I very much work with people on these things, talk about these things, am upfront about these things in a way I think a lot of other people do not and profit from that. I don't know that they're, I don't think anybody's tricking anybody. I think many times, just like I mentioned, the the classic shoot, we've been giving bad advice for years panel uh, mm-hmm. is the realization of like, all we ever spoke to was it worked for us or the stuff that we saw. And that's innocently and honestly where people are coming from. But there's a whole bunch of factors that also cause a delayed effect of, so let's say somebody's making a four or five year indie game, mm-hmm. which scary. Sometimes it works out, often does not, but scary. Yeah, uh, but so they're doing that. Meanwhile, they got a, you know, uh, they're part of their system and setup is like, okay, well, I got to draw attention to my IP. God, make it myself a known entity in the sphere for journalists and for other developers and players. I'm going to go out there and give talks. And so they're out there giving talks and conferences about like, well, here's what I'm doing. Here's my marketing approach. Here's my sales approach. Is that working? Who the hell knows? <laughs> Two, three years. Maybe we'll find out. Oh no. Right. And then, and then like, oh, uh, didn't sell any at all non-issue maybe even won some awards still didn't sell those are two separate things are they going to get on a stage and say that usually not but a whole bunch of the advice because of that winds up being people who have these very delayed effects of like i don't know here's what i've been reading seemed like a good idea talk to people that seemed like i don't know try it and a lot of the advice that floats around is regurgitations echo chambers parroting of that because the people they were learning from were in that same bubble of stuff and it is people genuinely trying to help each other out speaking from their own legitimate experiences but often does not have that proven transfer of like, well, we've actually taken this advice, given it to people. And there's also where partly as an educator, part of what I like about the fact that I've now got a longer arc with people is that like, I work with some of the same people for years at a time. And if I mm-hmm. teach them something bad, wrong, incorrectly early on, I'm sort of eating my own dog food of like having to correct that mistake later. I don't mm-hmm. get to do this thing. Like if I only meet with them for one semester, and again, it's part of why I, not to hate on that system, but that's part of why I pulled myself away from it. I didn't like that if I gave someone bad advice, I would never see the yield. I would never see the consequence. I didn't have to face like that actually didn't work well. I get to wow. kind of live with the folks and see where it's going and correct misunderstandings and then adapt and tweak how I'm working with other people with early answers to their questions. And uh, this is also part of why we introduced that like encouraging, we don't require it, but encouraging if someone's only ever worked in an engine, going back and doing some retro game code only type stuff. Because we found so many oftentimes if they'd only ever worked in an engine, despite engines being great, again, it's like jumping straight to a graphing calculator there's so many gaps and concepts that they skipped and missed that they wind up with these different sort of, they can't get the full use and power out of the development environment that they're in. There's things that are invisible problems that they don't know how to identify, aren't in a tool set until we kind of take a step back and are like, okay, well, let's revisit some fundamentals some foundations. There's some, some clever, quicker ways to solve some of these problems. And it also helps build up their confidence in like, shoot, if my code isn't working, I'm at least confident enough in that space because I've made mistakes. And part of why we look about code only learning stages early on is that if I have a mistake, it has to be in my code. It's only code. As opposed to in Unity, where half the time it's there, half the time it's, you know, I added a rigid body 2D, need to be a rigid body 3D. I didn't check this box, mm-hmm. supposed to check that box. It was actually buried under the edit, input preferences, physics settings, and then there's a checkbox oh, in this yeah. grid. Yeah, uh, and those are things where, like, if you don't have the confidence to look at your code and be like, this is rock solid, it can't be over here, people just get stuck and hit, a gla- and hit just like an invisible wall and get frustrated from, like, time passes and... So trying to uh, help mitigate that. But anyway, again, that's sort of a reaction to having worked with people who was sort of early on, let people take any approach they wanted and then figured out, okay, well, here's why I'm going to advise people against that and give them the real kind of breakdown of consequences of what we've seen happen from that. Not that it happens to everybody. There are people who absolutely jump straight into that space 
do just fine. And we'll still allow it to if someone wants to override that, but just a here's some things to be aware of as some possible trade-offs you're making mm-hmm. in that kind of approach to things. That's insane though, because it's literally been my problem for the last like two years. I just got so into doing it in Unreal. And then I'm like, I'm also not understanding what's going on with the programming. So like, I'm lost. I don't know whether it's my code is the engine or whatever. I don't know what I'm doing. And it's frustrating, honestly, but like I pushed through it, but for other people, you might give up in that situation and you just have to realize you have to take a step back and learn the fundamentals outside of the engine and code. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, last I used Unreal was actually on Medal of Honor Airborne. Uh, we were on UE3. So granted different tech pipeline, but we had blueprints or I guess kid, kismet instead of blueprints and so on. And it also still had Unreal script as a separate piece of that machinery. Oh, but wow. part of what I ran into for that was that at least at that era, and I know I've tried to do some things to change since, but I feel like this is often still the case I've seen for a lot of my peers and people on my podcast and stuff is we're like, that's an incredibly powerful tool set that is great for large teams of full-time people. It is. It has been less of a good fit, and again, not to say it can't be used, but less of a good fit for small, scrappy, handful, several people, off and on, few hours a week kind of level of time commitment, where it's just been an easier thing in Unity to hat switch than it is if we're in Unreal about like, okay, well, now I have to rig my animation and my model and my physics and my whatever. Those <laughs> pipelines are built for specialization, right? They're built so only people in your art department have to use certain components, modules, and so on. You can lean on a certain degree of the engineering team to sort out some stuff engine side of C++. And they're just things that uh, uh, it's not that it's a, it is absolutely, I will even say a stronger tool, but I liken it to like, if I need to dig a hole in my backyard, right? There's two tools. There's a shovel and there's like, one is like construction equipment grade machinery. It's like, that is a stronger tool and I will kill myself if I try to use it. I'll take the shovel this time. And it is, it's a matter of like right sizing our tools for our tasks, at least at the level we have our time and people and resources that a lot of our people find Unity is a closer fit for the kind of things that they're building. I like that you say that because I feel like it's going to give a lot of students the um the, the, like the calmness, the, the the take the stress away from like choosing something and being like I have to learn Unreal. And it's like mm, no, like you said, if you choose that tool, you might hurt yourself. But instead, <laughs> use something easier, and that won't make you feel less motivated. Or well, and again, I won't even I would I would even be careful about easier. I, I think often these things are relative to what we're trying to do with it and the environment context we're trying to use it in. Uh, if what you're trying to do is ship Assassin's Creed, use Unreal. Absolutely. Yeah. Unreal is the correct tool for that. Do not build that in Unity. On the other side, there is it's just like at the student project scale. And some of it's also it's a fear of a lack of transfer. And it's where sometimes if if this is the thing people have to be careful about, is that occasionally, uh, and I'm not being particular about any specific course or teacher approach, et cetera, but like there is a tendency sometimes to mistake that learning the tool is learning the craft. And I liken this to mm. okay, well, if you want to become a writer. And you sign up for a class and it's like how to be a writer. And what I teach you is what each menu option does in Microsoft Word. And you're like, this isn't irrelevant, but this also isn't how to be a writer. You've said not a thing about process, about like revision, about feedback, about structure. I know how to use this tool. You've taught me this tool. And there's a certain amount of things. And this is partly tough because sometimes beginning game developers will have this question of like, well, okay, what I need to learn is this programming language or this piece of software or this whatever. And what they're really learning is Microsoft Word and what all the widgets and buttons do in that. Yeah. And they have not ever even started the process of what is the process from concept into pre-production? How do you go about pitching a thing and rallying a team around it? How do you adapt the plan over time? How do you release on time? What are the trade-offs that you make? It's a very different set of skills than oh, it has to, you have to still use a tool of some kind, a programming language of some kind or, or something. But that is, that is like secondary to what you're doing with it. And so this is also where a lot of the tools that we teach, and this has actually long been our approach for Blender, 
Blender is an incredibly sophisticated tool. People make like like Hollywood film looking renders with it somehow. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Me. Okay, there's like four, four gazillion tabs and buttons and clicks and options and widgets and modifiers and stuff in Blender. I know how to do like four or five things in Blender. I I can like I can extrude. I can like split a face. <laughs> I can move a yes. point. I can I can like mirror a thing. But that's enough that I can make a thing where you're like, that's a chair, and now I'm done. Like that's a helicopter. Correct. Next thing. Cause I'm just trying to express the idea kind of at a sketch level of like, I just need my space to be able to have certain things depicted representationally without, okay. I do not have any way the caliber of art expertise to know the form and the contours and like the 12 layers of proper mapping textures and whatever. I'm very much just like, I just need a shape to get done. And this is also a case where for a lot of our tools, especially if it's not your primary, it's just some sort of functional fluency you want on the side. It can often be so much more advantageous to be like, okay, there's, three or four operations I know how to do, but I do them really, really well. And in some combination of those, I can achieve most results I'm going for beyond which any given thing I might find some special case I look up for like, okay, but I need this to like glisten like it's wet, or I need this to whatever. You find out how to do that for the one specific case, it falls out of your brain immediately after, and you go back to like, there's this core skill set. And that out of my many different things in my life I've kind of borrowed and stolen curriculum attitudes about was actually from our wrestling team where Mm -hmm. our wrestling coach was like, there's going to be teams and coaches are going to hear about where every single practice are teaching you a different move with a different name. We're going to learn how to like do three or four things and practice them so much that the other team can know you're exactly what you're going to do. And you still won't be able to stop you because you're just going to be very, very good at doing that thing. And that's very much been a lot of my, my skill proficiency in a lot of things is like, okay, well, here's the minimum things you actually need to know about this tool. Cause it turns out most of these menus, most of these things, how many of those are you clicking in word, right? You're typing, yeah, you're saving, you're printing. Like, you know where the paragraph button is if your line spacing's weird. And yeah. for most of us, like, we ignore the that's other 99% it. of it. The rest of it is, like, it's useful to someone that's there. It's not that it shouldn't be there, but you're, you're wasting brain power if you over-obsess over that versus, again, like, writing process. What am I mm-hmm. doing with it? What am I telling a story? What am I, what am I accomplishing here with my words? And actually, I had a light bulb moment, too, when I realized, because I used to think I needed to learn all of it. Once I, I understand everything that I'm doing, blueprints, Unreal, C++, just all game design, then I'll be ready to do my own thing. And then I realized, like, no, I just need to know the fundamentals, the few things. And then from there, I just build whatever I want to build. And if I don't know it, then I'll go branch out and learn. I don't need to learn it all right away to get started. Just need yep. to go. Yeah, and enough to splash around safely. And, yeah. and, and yeah, it's also this thing where I'll meet people like, well, as soon as I learn every feature of this programming language, then I will start. And I am, again, yeah. like, incorrect. And this is part of, like, so even when I, we use JavaScript for intro level, but I like to emphasize, I am not teaching JavaScript. I am not teaching JavaScript for its own sake. I'm not making anyone an expert in JavaScript. I'm teaching them to use game, to build games using classic thinking the same way I programmed those DOS games in the nineties. And it is like using a sub common subset of I've worked with a half a dozen languages professionally for games, about a dozen, if we include hobbyist school projects, research, whatever, but it's like almost every programming language I've used for games. And again, there's like super weird, esoteric academic exceptions. we got functions, we got variables, we got arrays. We got if statements, we got while loops, we got for loops. There's a handful of things that like, if it's not this, it's something pretty similar to this. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's really, it's okay. How do, how do I construct a game out of these generic elements that could, I could take this exact same way of thinking and my syntax might be a little different, but I could actually do the same thing in action script three, objective C. I've named those two because they're both dead languages now for game development purposes mm-hmm. for most people. But like, that's the point of any given place you're using it. It's nice to be able to have, okay, I have conceptual way of how to do this at these very, very fundamental basic elements beyond which any given programming language has its special weird hooks for like, actually, there's a really clever way to connect this data to the back end for your UI or something. Well, great. Okay, well, then pick that up when and how you need to splice that in to solve that particular problem. Mm-hmm. 
And and uh, that's also a thing. I think I've got an old YouTube video that kind of plays up this. Uh, MC Escher, who of course like did this bizarre wood carving, incredible spatial distortions at a time when like computers were not doing that work for him when he was alive. Right? This was mm, no. calculated stuff. And some old lecture he was talking about where like people assume he was like a genius in math or like a master of crystallography or whatever. He would absolutely like deep study the one particular thing he had to understand well enough to make a particular art piece come together. And it would just fall out of his brain. Like he didn't expert. He wasn't an expert in any of those things. He would like, I want to make a curvy thing and like study. How do I make a curvy thing? Make his thing falls out of his ears. Next thing he wants to do. Okay. Well, what if I made this thing with like these pieces fit together? And like, yeah, he, I mean, he's obviously he's an expert in what he does and like studied mosaics and other things. But for a lot of it, it was very much same thing we do as game designers. Where again, to go back to their example, it's like, okay, well, I mean, if I would have stayed on the Medal of Honor team for the consecutive years that project and development, instead of bouncing back and forth to school between times with that team, I would have got to think about nothing but like concrete pillbox designs and trenches for years. And like, that's what my brain has to be on. But then the moment after the project, they pivot me over to boom blocks and I'm like, all right, now I gotta be thinking about like puzzle spaces with balls and angles and bouncing and animals. And like the game designers challenge often is how do I fill my brain with what this current project demands of me? And it may have so little overlap aside from structure process communication challenges with what the other game as a space shooter, as a puzzle game, as a strategy game needed my headspace to be in in a way that we don't necessarily get to reuse as much of like okay well because i've solved this rendering pipeline issue this networking problem or even team production challenge from like the human management side part of that work is being a quick study and a way that doesn't assume therefore the rest of my rest of my life i have to be an expert in cart games or world war ii shooters or you know shmups or whatever mm -hmm. no i understand and then we another crazy thing with game development is understanding the game design part, uh, the whole theory of uh, psychology, all this complicated stuff to make something that's fun. And also I, I read a book and I, I can't seem to find the title, of it, but I think it was something to do about like happiness engineers where game designers have been are literally like they train himself to be someone who can make someone else happy. They design the games, the structure, the mechanics, also somebody can do something that rewards them. And it's like, what if we can get game designers to be in charge of situations in life, like government jobs or be yeah in politics and help design the world itself to be more of a place that's I, rewarding to people? I, I, I'm always, it's probably because maybe I've got feed a lot of different communities. I'm always wary of any, anytime any professions like, here's why, architects are like here's why architects should run the world and writers are like here's why writers should run the world and i'm like hold up hold up right it's like classic greek philosophy it was like philosophers was like here's why philosophers should be ahead of everything and i'm like there are pros and cons to your perspective and your window on life and so on and and this is even more out of the game space and this is this also gets into my advisor in grad school is ian bogost who kind of famously is very anti-gamification yeah he's got his concerns around this sort of space chris hacker used to give good talks about this stuff about like we sometimes shoot ourselves in the foot by thinking that we are compelling something with a reward structure where actually we are like, so I think classic is say like we would reward kids for reading by giving them pizza. We'd have this little shiny pizza hut badges. It was like the book it program. And that part of what the system does sometimes is it actually has secondary unintended effects of therefore we see the thing as the chore and we actually mm -hmm. like the reward more. And there's all these like non-obvious psychological things. We're even talking about like, and game designers will, I, I took Cogsite courses partly because I cared about like color contrast and response time, and reaction time. And these kind of things mm -hmm. seem like interesting as a real-time game designer. But at the same time, I think that we are splashing around in a zone where more often than not, we, we might have a good theory for some four-way stuff, like in the learning and design for boom blocks levels. I had kind of a whole diagram for what the cognitive process was supposed to, to be like my intention for like, okay, well, they have a theory, they form the theory. How do they test that theory? 
how do they respond to the feedback of the level space and how do we exaggerate the outcomes to help them read those feedbacks and so on. But I think that we have to be careful but oftentimes we are kind of iteratively experimenting, exploring in a way that is as so much complexity and what human brains are doing and how we behave and how we live and why we do things that we can be built on some either iffy assumptions or a way that only fits a certain crowd or audience that we're not careful about who's actually playing this game and why do they approach it this way? It's because it's about their age demographic is because of the profession that they're in equips them with different priorities and skill sets. And so I, I tend to be very at least cautious about these things. I'm also partial to, I gave a, a we used to write extra credit scripts for four or five episodes of that stuff back in the day, a few years ago. And one of them is called de-gamification. Mm-hmm. And it literally was kind of the opposite of, okay, well, sometimes we talk about gamification and oftentimes that community is talking about that stuff. What they're really talking about is attaching award points and badges and trophies to stuff. And I think John Blow of Witness, uh, uh, Braid at all, uh, et cetera. He gave the example of like, yeah, like actually businesses have been in that stuff for way before game designers got involved, like with their rewards, loyalty programs and the frequent flyer programs. Yeah. And that's a whole thing with coupons and whatever. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's so different from what really fundamentally most of us game design side are working on and what, I, what the whole cause for my de-gamification stuff was kind of a lens into there are games that as a kid at least were more fun to me with all the cheats on where like when i had god mode infinite ammo access to all the stages i just wanted to play toy soldiers in the rts yeah. i just love to run around in like the speed and how visceral and like the, the content of the doom environments and like seeing these creatures and exploring this stuff and a very different relationship to it that i liked as a lens on the the toyification or the play side of it where it's something different going on of the, the kind of widgety funness. Obviously, other research in this space uh, who is on the pro gamification side, and I think she's doing great, interesting research in that area. But like Jane McGonigal of Reality is Broken and she's given some good TED Talks and so on. She interviewed me some time ago about like hobbyist game scene and new people getting into games and stuff. And it's they're constantly trying to explore that space of like they did this thing years ago called Evoke. And it was meant to be a game, like a meta game. So not like a video game, but a, a, there was... I think discussion forums online and stuff about trying to incentivize people to do stuff that help the environment or volunteer in their communities or, or like make trade-offs about carbon emissions or something. I'll be honest. I don't know the details, but I did think mm-hmm. on those boards. And one of the things I noticed at the time was people who were complaining about like, shoot, uh, you know, Josh over here, whoever the heck it was, seems like they're kind of gaming the system, right? They're winning at this, but they're not really contributing. They're not really doing the stuff in the real world that they're supposed to do, but they've kind of found a loophole in our rules. And, and at, at both kinds of me felt like, so often, right? That's going to be what happens. Like, even no, no matter how much we talk about hell, even I carry supposed to fight this Dark Souls boss. I hmm. sit back in the corner behind the pillar and cheese it with a hundred arrows because you can get away with that. And like, no matter what it was designed for, as game players, we're very much all about the like, how do I get past this? Aha! Yeah, exactly. The strategies I keep Valdo elbow smashing, and I just unlock the other characters that way because it's so much easier. Where like, we optimize that from the player side, which is very different from the intended behavior. And, and if anything, to me, it was a sign of like, okay, well, then deeply here, deeply what was going on in that particular case, and is not to try to shatter the whole theory, but in that particular case, and like the Mythbusters, one time didn't work, maybe other times could, but it was like, if you can cheat the system and not actually cause the good you mean to cause, then potentially you've actually not built a system that's having that effect, right? You, there's mm-hmm. a whole separate community, which tangentially has some relation to this, this forum got us together or something. And then the last thing I'll bring up about these is this also old psych effect from behavioral research, where it's like, if there's something who was going to do something for free mm-hmm. and you pay them for it, you have actually destroyed their motivation around doing it in some cases. Uh, for, for years, uh, my first four training clients, I did one-on-one. And at the time, I was like a late teenager. I had experience making games, but not experience teaching. So it's just like helping people out for free to try to like, do I like doing this? Is this a shoe I'd want to move on in my life? And I had four clients who were like for a year, semester or two, I'd work on my games. 
one of them, like her game did really well, got some like awards and a competition for educational stuff. It was like a health platforming game, whatever. Um, and I, I hope she never hears this because I feel bad. But like, her parents mailed me like a thank you card and with 20 bucks in it. And it for the for the year of help, it would have been way better to have received no money than 20 bucks, which is almost just more of like, this is this is worse than just being like, thanks. And let me feel like I did it because it was a good person wanting to help somebody and wanted to try teaching and um, it very there was there was a uh, I can't remember if it was Gladwell. There's one of these kind of pop psych people writing about might have been a, a school in Israel, a daycare or something. And they're like, okay, we're gonna disincentivize people picking up their kids like from daycare. So we'll charge you five dollars a minute, ten dollars a fifteen minute. I don't know what the increment was. More people picked up their kids late because now they felt like, oh, it's fine. I'm paying for that time. We've come to an arrangement here. It's just a mm-hmm. transaction. It's worth thirty bucks for me to get them at six thirty. And it did not have the intended incentive effect because lives are complex and the situations in which we are operating and our assumptions are very different from the the basic intuition of rewards, good, punishment, bad. Um, so I tend to be very cautious of these things in the overlap. I'm sure there's interesting things that happen in that space. I, I tend to be on the on the camp of academics who are a little like, hmm, this seems complicated and nuanced and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, bears further exploration. And it's just like also like educational games, right? Where uh, it's not from lack of trying. Smart people are trying to tackle this problem and that we don't have more yield from it is usually like there be dragons because there's usually a graveyard you're not seeing of failed attempts mm. of people who have like been for a decade pushing at this. And where is that stuff? Yeah, uh, who knows? <laughs> but it really need to be shown more because honestly, everybody thinks everything's sunshine and rainbows. And honestly, it's not. It's, I've interv- it, uh, or sorry. I've interviewed a bunch of people and their stories between when they started and when, where they are now, there's a lot of stuff that like they might've quit for like two years and they came back and you just don't know. Yeah. It's a scary place. I mean, you know, the other side, right. If I'm a, if I'm a writer, like you can tell me how many books don't make it. Don't sell to ever get a publisher. It's not going to discourage me from trying and it's, it's, it's a complicated space. It's even, I, I, you know, I used to feel like because I was coming from, I was in schools that had a lot of people aspiring, especially at grad school, level to golf and games and entertainment, tech industry, creative stuff, et cetera, risky things. I would be in the library for studying for finals, doing projects, or whatever. I noticed a whole bunch of people there who are like literal aeronautics engineers at a world leading engineering program who all want the same job at Lockheed Martin. And there's a finite number of those jobs too, but they're out there fighting for like, I want, I want to do what I can to help my odds to be that person. And mm. at some point, there's going to be some yield to that. To me, it's just all about are our eyes open about what we're getting into, the risks involved. And, and then the counterpoint to that is also just a classic point from, I think, business school had like probably four different authors decided from this point because it's a common one. The amount of people who run and own a business, if you were like, knowing what you do now about what you had to do to get it to where it is, would you have done it? Most of them are like, no, I'm glad I did. I'm glad it's behind me. But I would have absolutely done something else in my life. There's very much this 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 weird naivety of in order to get into it, we have to at first look like that looks easy, that looks fun. I bet I can pull this off. And then there's sort of like, how do we survive that learning process in the middle of mistakes we can recover from, of things, chances we can take that are risks that don't throw us way off balance or you know somehow put us in an irrecoverable situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet a lot of people listening to this would be like, wait, should I do games? Should I not? Well, it, it, this is, <laughs> so, but this is where I try to emphasize people like absolutely make games in the same yeah. way as you would paint you would dance you would sing you would with well, the thing that interests you yes find a way to do it. it's never been easier than ever to do that for me it's a matter of when or if you shift into doing that as a business and that is where typically you need some sort of evidence of outside traction you uh, mm-hmm. like until you've got a bunch of youtube views about it until you've got a bazillion people keep retweeting your gifs because they love that stuff until you've got fans on an email list who you know or customers who will buy it until you've kickstarted whatever 
uh, then just be cautious about the amount of money you're putting into it. Mm-hmm. And then until that point, it is to think of it more of an expense, which is also a value use of people's money in life. Um, so we've got cases where I know a guy who, I don't want to be too specific about this either, a person who had lots of money, we'll just call it that, person had lots of money because the line of work this person's in had an idea for a game this person wanted made they paid someone to make it game exists done success wasn't trying to recoup that investment wasn't expecting this would be a hit wanted the thing to exist in the world had the money to fund it paid for it now it exists everyone's happy understood that's what they were doing and like there is a space for which if what you're expending money on is like i want to put neon lights on my car i want a bigger tv i want to fly to the bahamas because that sounds fun and that's Mm -hmm. what someone thinks they're spending their money on where it gets dangerous is if they think that they're tricking themselves and thinking this is a business investment. This mm-hmm. is likely to see a return. I can double this money. I can earn back this money. And that's where it's got to be operated on very differently. If you need to find some advisors who have stepped on landmines before, people who've run businesses that have failed, people who are you know, basically able to connect with you on being, okay, what's realistic? How do we find people? How do we vet people? It's just a very different process to engage in than I made a thing, let's see, and treating that like it's an investment. And, and this is also where the other thing to not lose track of in this of, okay, do what it should do as a business. I've got people who've joined my group before who they had made games that were profitable. They didn't like the kind of games they had to build. They knew how to make profitable in the modern era. And they wasn't scratching their itch for the whole reason they got into making games was to make their game their way, mm-hmm. which is very rarely in the Venn diagram of what's happening commercially. There's a few of those. Journalists love them. We love to hear them on stage. It's the exception, not the rule. For the most part, there's stuff that is serving the customer's needs and there's stuff that's serving the developer's needs. And if nothing else, there will be branching forks in the road constantly in the 100,000 choices you make in a game of, is this what my customer wants? Is this what I want? Is this how they want? Is this how I want it? And there are a few arterial voices. We can literally name like a handful alive to this day who those seem to overlap tightly as best as we can tell. And that's awesome. It is again, the exception. And so this is a thing where, okay, well, if part of you yield your project is the thing that I want to exist now exists, that's cool. Even if it's freeware, right? They, I've known people who've been in industry for like 40, literally 40 years uh, who to his own words will say he's been on like two projects he had any creative say in. That was not his connection to the process. He's worked on games and franchises you and I've heard of, loved, played, people recognize off the street. But like he didn't get to make his game because mm. it was hundreds of people on a ship deciding how to move the aircraft carrier, making responsible choices about investor funds and money and publisher deals and whatever. And that's just a very different experience than, you know, wouldn't it be cool if is is a different way to engage with this stuff. Mm-hmm, understood. Well, so I want to get into home dev game, uh, yeah, home team. What exactly is that for everybody who doesn't know? And then like, how how is it going? Because sure. you, it seems amazing what you did. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So home team game dev dot com, which I, I whenever I put dot com, I feel like I'm like a '90s commercial for like early dot <laughs> com boom stuff. But like, yeah. it just tells people like that's you know you got to the website's got more information. But so the gist of it is. Um, for a lot of people, right? People here they want to get into games, and a lot of people are like do game jams. And that's people's first answer. Yeah. And there's a few problems with that. First of all, it's a valid entry for some people. I'm not anti-jam. Some people, that's exactly what they need. There are some downsides that. So, uh, in my, fr- I've got my three posters behind me. In my first college club, we started back in 2004. The college newspaper at the time article about us was like they make games in only five months. Wow, that's fast for 2004. Jams weren't a thing yet, or at least they weren't very common. Like this is a super early era, like global games that might have existed as like a few stations or special schools or whatever by the time of my 2010 college club in grad school instead the newspaper article was like how do they stick to the same game for five months our process hadn't changed but the community and culture around us had changed to one where it's like oh i can i can put my world on hold for 48 hours do a game jam and then have it all leak out my ears but the discipline to stick to an idea longer to see it through to polish it to coordinate with other people 
that's tough. That's a different set of skills. And we'd have people who come into a group who killed it at game jams, who absolutely struggled with ever finishing anything bigger than that. Because there's different attentional challenges, planning challenges, navigating those, those the different issues. And so a lot of where we've tried to niche or, or fit in our, our value add is just people who like, again, like maybe they've done some jams, but they can't, they feel like they can't outgrow that level. They can't get past the stage of what they can do in a weekend. And or the other thing that also happens is they outgrow. I kind of, part of why I had mixed feelings around this, jams slightly, not all, but many of them historically have incidentally, by the virtue of their time structure, kind of celebrated crunch culture. Where like mm. from the moment it starts, you're already all trying to like push for the finish line and people like be in their sleeping bags with Red Bull and their laptops. And like, yeah, it's right. kind of cute when you're 17 years old, when you're grown up, Suddenly, like many people can't ignore their life responsibilities for 48 hours, 72 hours, disappear, stay up all night doing this stuff. They have obligations to their job, to their to their religion, to their family, to all the things in their the schools they work with, et cetera. And so for many people, like they then feel like, I guess I aged out. I guess I missed my window. I guess I don't get a chance to do this because people say the answer is jams and jams don't fit my life right now and where I'm at. So mm-hmm. home team in many cases has been people's answer for that of like, it is at the same level of pressure and stress, which is to say none. It is very much a based on what do you feel like doing? How do you want to do it? And this is also where another differentiation between some of us and some people are like, wait, why would I? And this is a misunderstanding. We've done everything we can to address people. So I was confusion. They're like, why would I pay to work on someone else's game? And you're not. You are paying to do whatever the heck you please with support and teammates and help. And this is a very different thing. We're like in a company shifting around between teams. I actually like, it was an argument on my side. They were going to move me to a different team that I was able to move myself over to boom blocks instead of the team they wanted to put me on, which I'm glad because the other project got canceled was like, took an argument and clout with like sway and negotiation internally to be like, I I'm going to be over there. It's that team where I'm walking out anyway. And it's just such a different thing to be like, I want to try out this role. I want to do this thing. I, you know, this, put me on that one. Um, in our group, People assign themselves to projects. They start projects if there's something that they want to make that no one else is making. People assign themselves one week at a time to the tasks and roles. They're not even tied to that team. So if a week passes, they can't do anything. No one sweats it. No one's breathing down their neck or chasing them down. Any given week, they're like, here's stuff going on on our team. People want to drift over here and help out with it. They can. And that's kind of how we're structured. And this has been modeled after, again, like from comparable to the processes we ran from 04 at Carnegie Mellon, 2010 and Georgia Tech, both of those still operating. This one actually started as a local LA group before we expanded fully online about half a year, maybe eight months later. But that's something where we've got people who are, we've released a hundred games on time that are all freeware, shoestring budget. And meanwhile, the other part of it is it's a just-in-time learning approach. So we've got instructor learning resources. Let's say someone's coming in, they've done nothing before. That's where my video course used by 277,000 people. That's part of our curriculum. We have some other internal documentation about shifting from, okay, I've got tutorial dependence. How do I break from that to do original projects? We've got a whole book on that. That's part of our membership. We've got things about, okay, well, I know what to do. I have access to resources and things that are not using them. So we've got a productivity audio book built in that's adapted from our members, part of our membership. All that kind of stuff's included. We're not doing that thing where it's like, aha, now we charge you for the textbook or the old karate dojo thing. Now you just have to buy our hundreds of dollars of gear that's licensed for our brand. None of that. Memberships, everything included, including also the help support from our trainers. When I say it's just in time learning approach, I'm a strong believer in that the best way to learn level design is not to take a series of lectures on game design or to read a series of articles about level design is to be building some levels for some games, which you do in our group whenever you feel like it for whatever kind of genres you feel like making levels for. And then you schedule a call with our level design trainer, Karen, who is a professional, former professional level designer. These days, she's an instructor with some colleges. And then she like meets with you to talk about your level that you're building, your questions, discussing your process. And this is where the learning happens is because I ran into a problem, I got stuck, or I didn't know how to take this to the next level. That's why I meet with our audio trainer, art trainer, myself for 
game design for project management for game programming kind of stuff. And I work with them concretely on your actual case you're solving, what's going to fix your problem, talking about different pros and cons of pathways. And the other thing that goes on in this is that, say, you know, not every single human being in our group uses or leans on those. And so some people are like, well, can I just pay less and not have access to those services? And no, they cannot. And the reason why is because everyone else on the team, including the lead, has that support and uses that support. They benefit from the fact that everyone else on that team has me helping them, has professional level design help, has professional art help, professional audio help, et cetera that they can just chip in on a project like one week, chuck in, made a level, disappear off the face of the earth, the game will come out with their name in the credits and level in the game. And that is so unusual for not only games to get done, but at that level of clarity of we've nailed this process, we've been doing it for now half my lifetime, and we've got just, and you see on the page, like hometeamgame.com, people's results of they they had never done anything before or they tried other stuff and it wasn't working for them. Courses weren't getting them there. They'd struggled for a long time. They couldn't release stuff. And then after spending some time with us, span of usually months, but sometimes years, they're like, I could go back and just d- annihilate the thing that I got stuck on in the past because the amount of practical experience they've gotten, the amount of support they've gotten, the amount of answers they've gotten to their specific questions, and is trying to solve things where it matters what they want to do, how they want to do it. Project leads are all kind of servant, ment- servant leadership mentality of we're really running this project to create opportunities so that people can kind of find a chance to like, ah, oh, you know what, I've always wanted to do an electronic song for a game. And this is a kind of kind of game I can design that to. So even for people like specializing in audio, we had a guy and I, I don't emphasize this case too much because it is rare of the rare of the rare tier of stuff. He already had a professional audio background. He already is doing TV, film, linear audio stuff, but didn't have any interactive stuff in his portfolio. Came into our group, did some things with FMOD with Wise, whatever to show like I can also do game audio, put that in his portfolio, worked now as part of the process at Sony on Death Stranding and Spider-Man PS4 audio. Ooh. Pretty rad. Um, and again, like I don't overplay that story. I think he's not even mentioned on our page because that isn't like I don't want anyone to think like come for us and work for these projects because no, that please don't join for that reason. You'll be in it for the wrong reasons. But like we've also had this case where someone has professional skills, but they never shown they can do the interactive version. They'll drop in for a few months, wham bam, add like six released games to their portfolio that they've done that skill in interactive space, and then they can take that continue to shop around that portfolio to try to move their way from something that wasn't games for modeling for linear animation or something into trying to use it for games in a way that helps them get their first contract gigs, their first kind of maneuvering in that space. But so it's not necessarily just vocational. It is at a low enough level of investment for people on the weekly dues that I stress that, like I say, it's more like high school athletics level of seriousness, mm-hmm. which is to say that, okay, people who went into the NFL probably played high school football. Most people who played high school football did not wind up in the NFL. However, because of the level of investment and life balance involved, Nobody, I mean, most people are looking back and be like, I shouldn't have played high school in football because I didn't go to the NFL. It was worth it. I met people. I grew. I learned about myself. I gained skills. Mm -hmm. It was enriching to my life. And that's very much our approach to game development. It's like for those who are going on super seriously and padding their portfolio with like meaningful stuff that done in concrete examples, like I solved these problems. Cool. And we've created a structure in which they can peacefully coexist with somebody else who maybe can spare like an evening or two a week, uh, maybe an evening or two a month, just chipping in on stuff. And we fit all those pieces and parts together in a way that we ultimately also see on our group for our 100 release games, our credits are ultra, ultra, ultra specific because we know whether they're showing it to a recruiter or the family member, the first question is always, what part did you do? And so we don't have, you know, programmer, list of names, artist, list of names. We're like, Jenny did this model, this code, made this feature work, solved that level. And it's also the opposite of like, if you have ever uh, looked at the credits for Photoshop, Adobe, they were like pile of people. 
And before I knew better, before I was in industry, my assumption was like, oh, that's kind of neat. It's like equality. It's flat. There are, you know, everybody here is the same. Who's a manager? Who isn't? What they're literally trying to do is make it harder to snipe their employees out from, I want to hire the one who solved that Gaussian blur problem. Really? They're, that's what they're, they're doing? They're, they're obfuscating who does what because it's harder to like, to, wow. to poach recruit. Um, we want people to poach recruit. If you mm-hmm. think level three is awesome, come get our person who was on level three. We'd love you to do that. So we want to make it real clear. We also find that helps lower the pressure. Like I said, we have very different skill levels. We have people who've been just nailing this stuff for seven plus years. Now they thrive with us. We've got people who came in Denver, did anything before. We're the first examples on games, but that helps them coexist. Cause so like say Angelo, he's, he did so great. We actually built him like a video portfolio of like he, he was already a, uh, like doing really sophisticated 3d robot models and he wanted to make more robots. And I was like, Angelo, we love your robots. I'm going to lead a project just to give an excuse to use your robots and stuff. We did that, came out neat, had a cool explosions and machine guns and effects and bullet casings and stuff, put in his portfolio video for him. But then like someone else might look at that same game and see a model Angelo didn't make and be like, Angelo, I thought you were good at modeling. And with the credits being so specific, you'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. That, that was someone else's model. Like here's the models I did. It's right there. And it just helps lower the pressure between massive mm-hmm. skill disparities where I think it is important for people to be on the same teams because so often we learn from our peers more so than someone in front of the classroom spouting at us, which could have been a YouTube video. It comes from the people around us that we see their process. We see how they're, what they're getting done in, within their constraints. We see their iteration as they commit different versions and as they discuss in, in a part of the team, like color palette choices and other things that like, I might not have been how I thought about it before, but it kind of rubs off on us through our peers of like, I mean, that's within my wheelhouse. I can read about that. I can try that. I can explore that. I can start to make some mistakes in that area safely. I think it is also where safely is a major part of our stuff. We don't, we don't use any bot assets. We want our people to like, the whole point is to practice stuff. And we would rather have a rougher asset we made internally. And this is not to say this is necessarily the approach everyone should take for a commercial project, but we are a learning environment. And we would rather have people to be able to make this stuff internally. So I have to learn enough skill fluency. One of the things we do ask for our project leads, besides the ability to do a basic prototype to pitch on, and I work on the schedule and a guy that works straight hundreds of these kind of projects, is that they should have the basic cross-functional fluency to fill in gaps so they can make the game badly alone in the time that is scheduled. Not that they'll have to do it alone, but this is what ensures that they can fill in the gaps, connect all the pieces at a higher level, that if someone flakes out, the whole team's not in trouble because we know that the lead's ready to go in there and like make a sound effect that'll be okay and not distracting bad, but it'll it'll you know not be silent either. And so that's kind of the things we try to gear our people up for. And we've gone through all those tons of documentation, process, iteration, custom backend help system. Me, we've got a new guy who helps people are onboarding, all kinds of stuff. We've built systems around this for years, released a lot of games with a lot of people and still growing and still doing that. It's, it's truly incredible. It's a, literally a place where you can go and kind of like be in a studio, but it's more of a learning environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the again, greatest, yeah. Was that the vision of it before? Like when you made I, it in college? So, I mean, again, so in college, it was literally, it's like, we wanted to make games. And so part of our story there too, and this is, this is, I, I now work with some of these people. So it's always careful me, but like, so with indicates over the organizers are like professors from that same program. But like back then we had some undergrads and ETC is the grad school at Carnegie Mellon that like is entertainment technology center. They're specialized. They've got a lot of Disney connections and EA and Activision, like real important industry connections to send people off for interns before. And some undergrads want to take their game design course. And at the time, the attitude was sort of like undergrads can't make games. And our group was sort of like the middle fingers to be like, yes, we can. And then we would send more interns to the giant studios like EA than the grad school would. And like, wow. I'd be talking to the, audience, the HR person who's like, yeah, your people are at least as good or maybe a better fit for this particular kind of work. And I was like, nailed it. So yeah, it was just very much like we just wanted to make games. At the time, it was not even our intention or my intention to do it professionally. Part of what actually wound up happening again is where I'm I'm not mad at, grateful for the overlap there. 
my landing connection to EA was that we had a recruiter coming to campus because of the ETC. They would not have been there for our little college undergrad club. They were there for the grad school that held his connections and so on. While they're there, they came and gave a talk to our group. Afterwards, that's when they got my resume, followed up with me, and that's what landed me on the Medal of Honor Airborne team, and then eventually Boom Blocks, and then helped start some of my connections to jumpstart my career as early as it did. And when did you decide to leave EA? Uh, after five months full time. So I'd been there two summers as a, as a, just like between school years doing stuff mm-hmm. as a technical game designer. And there's a variety of issues. Uh, and, and I'm also my usual pilot disclaimers, not saying it's a bad fit for everybody. It was not a good fit for me in terms of, I, I liked being a small part of a team where again, I knew what each person did. I liked being able to splash around in different skill sets. I didn't like, and I respect that at that scale, you have to pigeonhole to a much tighter degree of like, I am only here to design levels or I am only here to write code or I'm only here to do whatever. I like that cross-functional overlap in those spaces. And so that's when I got to leave there to do contract game development for like, did a solar panel advertising game, made some iPhone games that did incredibly well, like I say, for a publisher or two, less so for me, no lawyer in my early twenties. And (laughs) then like, but it was a case where like millions and millions of people, like so Topple used to be on like one in five iPhones, but like they heard me like, that was my mouth when those blocks banged into each other on that iPhone mm-hmm. game. And like, I liked getting to be every part of that process. And that's also where part of what we thrive about in our home team environment too, is that you get to do the things that you again have, like a, a studio would be irresponsible to let you do. They're like, you're not yeah. doing it. So this is also in like one of literal examples from there. And actually one also from Fox next where like at the studio, there was a person whose whole deal was basically being the hand animator. And that's a slight exaggeration but not much of one. And it'd be like, if someone else is get, cause like FPS games, your hands are all up in your camera. That's very, very important to get that done at world-class level. And it's like, if he wants to do something else, sorry, we need him on hands. If someone else wants to animate hands, sorry, that's what we've got him here for. Mm. And it's that to every single degree with hundreds of people of specialization in a way that the output is incredible. So polished, best texturing in the world, best animations imaginable, best level design, et cetera. But to each individual, it just felt like, and again, I don't mean to demean the work the way this might sound, but it felt to me like I was on an assembly line of mm. like, yeah, I kind of like, I have car ideas and that's, I want to like get to try to shape and try step and look at things. And I also respect that's different than what you do at that scale. You've got thousands of salaries on the line. You've got investor stuff online. You, that's not how you operate there. It's a very different thing than the smallest scales of stuff. And another one was a guy who, he was one of our guest speakers. I visited Fox Next Studios. About a third of that team actually seemed to be overlapped from my Boomblocks era. One of the funny things that happens Whoa. is the same people kind of scoot around between different brands and investors and platforms mm-hmm. and whatever, making Marvel stuff for iPad and whatever. And one of the guys was an artist. He was like, yeah, we kind of have like the rock person on our team who like, they make rocks and they're really mm-hmm. good at it. Like the texture's incredible. The poly count, amazing for the output. And like, they, but like they go home and study rock modeling they're like reading research papers on rock modeling. They go to conferences, attend to- rock, talks on rock modeling. And it's like, well, that's why they got to work on the franchise where like X-Man is in it. Like, like that's like the X-Men, like Wolverine is in there and they got Cyclops and like, that's pretty cool. And other people who like don't want to make those trade-offs and this is not to fall to either direction, maybe don't because Marvel is like, you know, and then you wind up with these things where you got all these people who work with IP licenses and those are tighter than they used to be in like the Golden Eye, Lilo and Stitch era. But like, they'll be able to be like, you know, you have your ideas for what you want to do. Be like, no, 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 no. These ca- the character now stands like this. He doesn't stand like that anymore. And they're all up in there about like what you can and can't do with Star Wars, what you can and can't do with stuff. And so yeah, they're I, strict. I, I think a decent, which again, I respect it. Like they got to protect their IP. They have a brand mm-hmm. to maintain. They've got the films and lots of like so many jobs on the line and a lot like I respect that. But it is where like, okay, well then 
that was not where I was happy. That was not going to be my fulfillment. That was not a fit for me. There's some other bickering and problems I had, but this is, you know, I was, I was kind of, I was much more aggressively angsty at that age than I am now. The other thing I also didn't like about that scale that I do like about as soon as I went to smaller stuff was the amount, and this also happened to startup too, for what it's worth, but the amount of NDA where I wasn't even allowed to talk about my stuff. This had been such an instrumental part of my life since I was literally a preteen to be talking about any given time when I'm working on, like it's such a part of my, you know, like if I was a musician, I'm working on songs. If I was a dancer, like I'm, you know, doing this thing, I want to share that. Um, You cannot, absolutely cannot in many of those environments talk about what you're doing with anybody, except your coworkers who are tired of hearing talking about it, unless they're being paid during that hour. And this is very much, and again, I respect it because part of it goes on and we saw this happen. We're like, just as an example to one of those that's very public and like not a secret at all. They had made the mistake of discussing with some journalist years prior that this game was going to have like four player split screen multiplayer or something, same console in a way that performance wise, optimization wise, end of pipeline ship date could not pull off. And it results in angry customers who felt like they had been promised one thing. The team had not been able to safely deliver on what that particular thing was that they had an expectation for, which takes you a ding on the reviews which affects the Metacritic, which literally affects people's bonuses and salaries and ability to get their next job, et cetera. Because any given time you're doing a thing that like factors beyond your control may not determine what you get to ship with. Now I like at the smaller scrappy scale of just like sharing openly what I'm doing. That's a part of the process. That's a part of the fun for me. And again, so this doesn't mean therefore the answer is to blow that studio up by doing it my way. It is to say, y'all keep doing their world-class, incredible, great stuff. And there's a lot of good people there doing what they're doing who love their lives and are happy there and it's not hating us in them, but it's like, I'm going to go over here and do this other thing that scratches my itch of what I'm in it for. And and then it's, you know, each phase has always been a little movement more towards what I feel like is my chance to deliver the highest value in my life to people that I feel like is a, is a fair trade or a great deal to them for when able to charge for it. And there's also where in the university setup, and again, my usual disclaimers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I did not feel good about in the United States in particular, the amount which our schools have to charge for what they're able to deliver on mm-hmm. straight up. And, and this is, this is not to blame our faculty at all. Professors, I know smart people, brilliant people, wonderful people, loving people, care about the students and so on. They're getting screwed too. Right. When those students, when there's 30 people in a classroom, all paying five digits of tuition, those professors are in many cases also making five digits of salary. And there's a lot of other money disappearing in a lot of other directions. And I'm not trying to claim there's anything corrupt about it. I also get, they have to garden 400 acres and maintain a football stadium and like have insurance for if a chemistry lab explodes, like, the logistics, very real at what they're doing. Respect. Now, that said, I think that for many people, if what they want to do is I want to make games, that's a skill I want to have, I can teach that separate from some other stuff. And again, it's why I go back to examples like guitar lessons. You don't go to guitar lessons because you think you're going to become like, I don't know, like playing on a stage with a sold out theater. In most cases, you're assuming like, I want to know how to play guitar. That's a skill I want to have. That sounds cool. That's my level of like, if you want to learn how to make games, I can teach you that. I can get you making games. I've done this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. That's what I do. I'm not telling anybody what you're going to do is be like top of the app store, et cetera. That is up to other things in your life and your choices and your priorities and as much as anything else and lots of other stuff. But I can give people this a safe space to experiment, to strive, to make things, to build things, to get credits behind their name of things that they've done, solved on teams, got answers to the questions when they got stuck. And that's the other bit too of part of where our support structure of our trainers, myself included, can be scheduled on call at any given time and the people need help for stuff is sometimes just people having the chance to turn to part of what we call it office hours is in grad school. I'd be teaching the, the curriculum for these classes for the undergrad programmers or some of the grad school classes, whatever. And like someone would schedule time to appointment with me to be like, okay, Chris, I'm stuck. I'm gonna schedule time to meet with you. And then they would fix it. And they'd be like, I got it. 
we can cancel the time. And I'm like, great. But just having that safety net to know that they can turn to someone for help. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they fix it themselves. Sometimes they don't. We still work on it. I get to do a bunch of those each week. I love doing those. But it is a thing where even I, I think of it a bit like I, my metaphors are all over the place, but like weightlifter spotter, right? Where in order to like really push yourself and continue to be at your edge of your skills, you need to be able to take something on with a chance that like, but this can't crush me. I can't mm-hmm. die getting this wrong. I need someone right there to be like, oh, made a mistake, tried one too many. And then to someone else to be like, we got you. And that's just the normal part of the growing process. And without that, that's where like people get stuck on the same problem for months. Their morale goes through the floor. Their project never comes out. They never actually wind up anything to show for the months or the years they poured into it. They kind of just like fade away. And, you know, that's a shame. I hate that. I don't want people to have the experience. And so I've set up a way that I can have people doing that where they know they're supported. They've got options any given week to plug right into things very easily, get more efficient use of their time. Meanwhile, also be like feeling right about the amount for which we are paying our trainers. We're paying our support. We're paying our back and for the stuff. I'm out there hustling, trying to help bring them more fun people to work with. Some other people also figure out like, Hey, I like my craft, whatever it is, programming, art, audio, music, writing, project management, whatever. I don't like networking. Not everyone likes networking. I have obviously spent my whole career networking. Part of what I'm kind of out there doing is hustling for them to help bring them more teammates mm-hmm. to be like, Hey, come work with this other great, like kind, supportive, understanding, happy people in home team game dev who want to help each other out and, and learn with each other. And they just get to keep building their games, what they want to do. I keep bringing them more new people, helping train those people to be like where they need to be to work with those people. And they just keep thriving, keep making games. And like I say, for some people, it is a stepping stone towards other stuff they're trying to do. For many others, this is just like their bizarro thing. Like I weaken dodgeball of, I got this That's wild true, hobby. Yeah. Hey, you know, check this out, Carol. I've been doing this thing or like showing their family on Thanksgiving, like, yeah, here's this puzzle game I'm working on. And they're just like, that's a thing. And you're like, it sure is. Um, <laughs> and making this fit in people's life without feeling like in the same way of the university, like, God, if I don't get a job in this industry, I am in a hole. I don't know how to dig my way out of. And so that also includes out of our process, on our application, straight up right there. And I don't know how many of businesses able to do this. There's literally a box for like, I would need my dues covered. And if someone cannot even afford. So our dues are priced at a level and in the whole business built around being able to be, do it sustainably where I'm not having to like, I'm stretching myself too thin to help people. I can't do it. I can commit the time to do this because we cover the cost. However, for people who can't, there are people on Patreon who anonymously support at a subsidized rate, strangers who apply, who couldn't otherwise take part in the process. And this is partly because what it was a middle-class affordable amount of money in the United States for, um, to be frank, my demographic of people who look like me and have the advantages and privileges people who look like me have is for many other people out of budget for them. It is, it is, they haven't had the same opportunities to get paid as decently or in many other parts of the world, literally like PayPal, it can't be accepted there for regulatory governmental stuff Mm -hmm. in other parts of the world. The U S dollar is so stretched different than theirs. That is what, again, seems like, like, I don't know, uh, eating at Chipotle to us is somewhere else, like a month of earnings or something. So, and that actually helps in many ways. So we wind up with people in more parts of the world. And I'll also say, it's not always the one people assume in terms of where it is. We also have people in the United States who there are parts of the U.S. and people's lives in the U.S. who are equally impacted and so on. But they're able to take part in the process and everybody strives and grows from that, from having more connections elsewhere in the world. And it's also part of what we also is, is just like, to some extent, though not primarily, it's a social group of people. And part of what's neat is because we are not just like from these other places, like people who all co-locate in a college, but we're still living in these places. Any given time in the world, when there's a thing going on where there's like civil unrest in Spain, there's an earthquake in like New Zealand, there's a whatever somewhere, there's politics issues in any given place, whatever. We don't massively like forefront and make a thing of any given time is bad news somewhere, but like it always affects someone that we know. 
And I think that also like in a neat way to me kind of helps maintain the kind of small world feel of like, we're not all as far apart from each other. Like these aren't just some abstracting somewhere people are affected by this stuff. And we kind of get to know and understand around each other of like, shoot, you know, might hear less from, you know, Tyler this week or something because there's stuff happening where they're at. The fires are up there. They had to like evacuate or whatever. And these are, I don't know, to me, that's an interesting aspect of just having people in our lives in a way that, especially during your 2020s pandemic situation, we kind of lose connection with even our local contexts. And so for many of our people, it helps wind up being the thing. And, and I guess actually the other point to that is in many cases, counterintuitively, right? Like most of the populations in big cities, we actually started as Los Angeles local group that met in a public library out here. But most of our people who are in our group are not in center of London, center of New York City, center of Chicago, center of Orlando, center of LA. They have other communities and meetups and options like the IGDLA, which I'm also the chair of out here in Los Angeles. We run other online events and stuff these days because of the pandemic, but it used to be a local group. A lot of it's people who are like a drive from there. They're in Minnesota. They're three hours outside NYC. They're in kind of like the sticks part of the UK where like they don't have other meetups and people to connect with who will follow through, who are as interested in them. They've maybe had a few rocky times trying to get like their apartment neighbor to be like, hey, do you want to make a game? And like, you know, and that's so tough, right? It's just like, it's like if I want to start a band and like, do you want to learn drums? And like, I mean, maybe that sounds really hard though. And like, it's it's hard to find those people and we try to help make solve it. So I'm out there finding those people for them with my YouTube video content, with my podcast, with my stuff like this, with the different ads that I run and so on to try to bring people in to work with them to meet them so they can just, like I say, do the part that they enjoy back to back to back, release another game. And then we also kind of joke about we're sort of a freeware publisher where we take care of the distribution, the posting, the connection, the finalizing credits, the other kind of things. So they can just focus on start the next project, do another thing, splash on this project, have a hands few of things, do the part they enjoy, get the most out of the few hours they got a week. Cause many of them like Sarah to phase of life where game jams wouldn't fit anyway. And you're doing incredible work for the game dev community. Thank you. Trying. (laughs) Yeah. And I see on the map too, you got people from everywhere, but yeah, like all this. (laughs) Yeah. And and we, like I say, it's, it's a point of pride for me that, so, and and this is something I think about a lot because every community I've podcast that I run for Indicade, for panels, for IGD, et cetera. Important to us is several different axes of diversity, of age, of background, of accessibility and so on. And we have, we've had people in our group and I'm, I, I hate, I never want to be that person who's like parading people, et cetera. So I don't like to get into specifics or whatever, but like there's people who find our group more accessible in ways that other people did not have the opportunity or assumed couldn't mm-hmm. have worked for them because of where they are in the world or because of physical access issues or because of other things and factors about time and job commitments and other things where very much what I'm trying to do is show like this can fit in your life. This can work. You can and should be, if you want to be making games in a rate that is affordable or if need to wait list for the sponsored views covered option. To be participating in these processes, meeting new people through it, growing through it, that in many ways I think helps us, even if our thing doesn't go back into games. You'll see some of our testimonials and stories on that page too of like people who maybe they didn't get the job in games, but like help them get the confidence in coding to find their first paying gig and like programming of some kind. And some of my favorite stories of this, we've had people who, I don't want to avoid specifics of jobs, but like had no technical training, had no degree, had no certification, didn't get a college thing, et cetera still got like a decent paying software engineering gig wow. out of what they had kind of learned, which again is, is rare enough. I don't want to promise that I don't forefront too big deal that, but it's a thing that like legitimately I think helps show like what we're doing is actual stuff that is of like connects them to a foundation to continue. If they choose to supplement that with other learning, with other kind of skills, with other narrow specializations to be like, heck, I never thought I could do this because I, I couldn't have afforded to set aside the time for the college or the money for the college or whatever. And again, us in particular, some specific challenges around, space for us here but it's been trying to find a way to make it work for more people and 
building on those stories has been great. We've had people who came in initially on sponsorship because they were not in a life situation to be able to afford their stuff. And we also, we hide that internally. We never say who is which. We never discuss that. We don't make a thing. But that same person then was able to like do well enough because of the stuff they learned in our group to then become a sponsor for multiple members in the future, giving mm-hmm. back into that of like, this super helped fix their situation. They want to help continue that for other people. And so we'd love to see that kind of thing too, of like getting some results for people and turning around some situations in a way that is not our primary focus, but is a thing that inevitably happens from you're practicing these skills. These skills have marketable value to many different kinds of businesses mm-hmm. and, and, or uh, it also just winds up uh, working much better in an interview to be able to discuss, like I've solved problems with teams. We've like made compromises to design to fit the deadline. We've come through these like production challenges. Here's how we kind of pulled off this thing in a way that one of the other things that happens from the, the people who join us have only ever maybe done jams or only done solo stuff, or only taken a course or something is that if they've only ever worked alone, there's a certain amount of liability that a company is looking at as to like, can they write code anyone else can read? Can, are, are they going to be really defensive about feedback? Can they like communicate with others? And, and as much as that sounds like either a negative stereotype or a joke, like it's very real. Christy Stoll, she was actually, she was my recruiter back when I went off to EA LA at first. Since she's also worked at Activision Blizzard as their lead recruiter, she worked at Sony Interactive as like a major, she's bounced around the game industry as like a major recruiting person. Wow. She used to say like, That's awesome. any given time, there are essentially for their needs, infinite resumes of people who could do the technical work. What they need to know is, is someone who can do technical work and can talk to other people and work on a team. And so part of what we're also hoping people across the box for is be like, look, I've released 17 projects. What are your questions? Let's talk about it. And being able to tell those stories makes such a difference of like, Whatever the wrinkles are, they've proven out like, no, I've written code other people looked at. I've worked with code other people wrote. I've like made collaborative challenges that bridge communication gaps between skill disciplines. And it's just this other set of skills that's like, it's really hard to make, say, like a video course about that besides like firsthand. I had this experience. I made these original titles. There was no answer key to copy from. We had no guide ahead of time. We pivoted and adapted as we went. I, I learned how to ask for help. And there's another thing we also look for in our project leads is like they've used office hours from me before is often a big factor because if they've never asked for help, it's dangerous to let other people get on the boat with them mm-hmm. because if they get in trouble, they're not going to speak up about it and get help. If I know it's someone who That's will reach out one. when they get in a jam to be like, okay, I don't know the answer here, but I can find someone who does. Same thing for like, we talked earlier, like accidentally starting a business. If someone doesn't know how to reach out for help because they don't know where their limit is for like, I'm not going to make this decision correctly without some sort of guidance. That is such a dangerous ship of will not return to harbor versus somebody who figures out like, I don't know everything. I can't know everything. Other people have been here before me. Other people have solved similar things. I can triangulate. It doesn't mean they're steering for me, but even as I find people to consult with, to be like, can I run some things by you? Cause it seems concerning. Uh, you know, this is something, gosh, this is a question. I should run this by a lawyer and not just make it up as I go. And these are the kind of things we're like learning how to ask for help. Also, because I'm again, like a better employee because the company can count on, they're going to find somebody to get it done. Even if it means, you know, tugging a shirt and being like, what does this mean over here? Can you clarify your specification or whatever the thing might be? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big one because a lot of people, even me when I was younger, you don't want to ask for help. You're like, I can do it myself. I can figure it out. And it yeah. just doesn't work well, with, especially well, when you're working on a team. There's so many things that I think I, uh, uh, I'm a huge, like a lot of my reading, we've got a whole section in our handbook for our members about like the philosophy from traditional educational philosophers about how like it was never a consumed ideal as to, you know, a classroom of 300 kids listening to a lecture. That's, that was no philosopher in history was like, that's the way education should be. Um, a lot of our models actually based much more closely on how they say it ought to be of like people working on their projects, people consulting when they need help, scheduling time for that kind of stuff. 
But I think a lot of things that unfortunately come out of the necessity of scaling education the way that we have, and I've got friends, I advise on a high school board out here with the game to have program and volunteer with a bunch of other high schools, so I'm sympathetic to the challenges that they're at for scale. But students wind up with this experience with an assumption of, I will not get handed an assignment unless I know I should be able to do it all on my own. If I look at anyone else's answers and discuss it with them, I'm cheating and it's wrong. And if I hand it in and it comes back to me with red marks, I screwed up. I should have done it better before I got any feedback on it. Oops, it's going to be a C forever. I ruined it. And so many of that is, is not only the opposite of what you need to succeed in adult life or software engineering, et cetera. Like some of our first things are like, hey, I've been programming for 23 years. I still expect errors. That is part of the process in the feedback. I get those red marks and I'm not like, I'm dumb. I shouldn't have done this. I'm like, okay, let me fix those and push mm-hmm. it at the machine again. And this is part of the process. And the same thing happens for interpersonal communications of it doesn't mean you like are wrong and bad because you did a thing and got feedback on it. It means like, that's the process. This is how things happen. This is how anything gets done. And again, that same thing of like, they train us in college. If you ask too many questions to the classmates about how they handled a certain assignment, you are cheating, can be expelled, suspended, permanent record, screwed up, wanting to let you know other schools mm-hmm. or let you back. Super screwed up. Because again, in, in adult life, anybody doing anything worth doing that is interesting, that is innovative, that is novel, the sort of thing I've my entire business is built around, you are having these discussions with other people because like you're at the edge of what's possible, even with everybody's help. And it reminded the two out of those, like I mentioned, the comp sci undergrad, a lot of the assignments were things that at first were like, man, if I could use a computer, I could just dominate this problem. But instead they'd be like, whiteboard this, discuss it. And I respect there's people like 10 people at Google have a job that really requires that. So respect mm-hmm. to them. It's not me. It's not path I've chosen in life. But when they were doing that stuff, where it got interesting for me, it was like junior, senior year, they would start to give us problems that were hard enough. They'd be like, it is literally impossible to solve this without the use of a computer but it's still going to be hard. Go get it. And that's where it was interesting to me of like, aha, now I can shine and thrive on like finding ways. Cause you can't even brute force it. It's a hard enough problem, but you can have to be clever about like, okay, if I, with the power of a machine, how can I do this? And that's where the problems in the world that are like, I think most interested in building, creating, doing stuff, starting businesses, trying to shift what people are doing, how people learn, et cetera. It's going to involve, it's, it's not going to be, what can I do alone all by my lonesome without the advantage of other people or machines? It's okay. Given absolutely everything possible at your disposal, talking to other people, seeking advice, getting input, watching courses, having the textbook right there, whatever. Now, what can you do? And that's really the much more interesting place of like, you're solving a problem that hasn't been solved before because it involves asking questions no one's dealt with, or it involves trying to be at the fringe of these things, which is always going to be working with other people who've comparable, some Venn diagram overlap, not one-to-one, but like, what can I learn from them? And it's also where I think too many people worry about the idea that I've got to find the world-class expert in doing the thing to be able to answer this. And it's very much, even the people who've made mistakes in a comparable, mm-hmm. similar enough to not make the same mistakes they do. And it's kind of like we talked about earlier, the bad advice problem of if you only actually talk to people who've only ever succeeded, you're, you're actually in a really rough spot because as far as they're concerned, you go out and just do what you want and then you succeed and you're fine. And that is, uh, they, 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 they are that uh, one in a hundred thousand case and they are particularly bad givers advice for reasons that aren't their fault. But it is to say that they have so few cases to drop on, unlike I do, of someone has taken my advice, here's the results I've gotten them, and they will attribute it directly back to like, yes, this is what got me here. Yeah. And it's really important because mental health is a big thing in the industry. A lot of people go through many challenges. And I bet you've had people who got burnt out, but like, because your space is very safe and very like yeah. less stressful, they were like, oh no, like I'm back. I can do this now. So, well, yeah. And, and again, I, but so in, in one of my other credits episodes is very much about the psychological strain and stuff people put themselves through. Like they feel isolated. They feel like they're not getting feedback. They feel hopeless. They feel all this kind of stuff. And this is where, to my opinion, they're doing it wrong. 
that you do not have to, it, it doesn't have to involve this. It does if you're doing it badly. And I'm not even blaming the people for not knowing better because I think they've husband has not had the right teachers they need and haven't found the opportunities don't realize stuff like what I'm doing exists. And I say like what, because I'm not sure the only person doing this. I think I'm the best at it. That's why I'm doing it the way I think I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. But other people are doing things comparable or shades of it or angles of it, et cetera. But it's a case where like, if you look at like a refrigerator, right? They put a sticker on there and it's got like one person, no sign, two people carrying it, like safe sign. And like, there's things that should not be done by one person. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't. That is incorrect. You are going to throw out your back. You're going to kill yourself. You're going to get crushed on the stairs. Don't do that incorrect bad. And a whole bunch of people, partly because they don't know how to find people. They don't know how to find reliable people. They don't know how to communicate with those people. They don't have some support and structure to turn to, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. Wind up in a case of like, well, can't find anyone to help move my refrigerator. I guess I'll move it alone. And then, yeah, it takes a toll on them. Yeah, it destroys them because they're not supposed to do that. That's not how this happens. And I think some of this also, there's a... Oh, it's going to be a stretch. Uh, some martial artist, a stunt person, famous in some part of the world that's not necessarily in American films, but he had actually grown up watching martial arts films, didn't understand it was a bunch of special effects and wires edited out and stuff, and would like do everything he could to like run on water and like mm-hmm. like do these bizarro like backflips off of walls that like you like people don't do that, but like yeah, he no. didn't know any better, and like and, and granted. Like, okay, like 70% kind of can do some of these things at like a degree to like, holy smokes, he obviously went through like a decade plus of his life just thinking like, how do I do it because I'm people doing it. But I think the same thing happens in games where we've always wound up in this problem. And this actually is popularized by an old IGN thing we pulled out for one of our extra credits episodes about the team or the auteur myth episode I wrote for that. About people will be like, there's a quote from Warren Spector being a video about Deus Ex for IGN magazine, I think. And they literally asked him up front, and he was trying to explain, like, oh, yeah, the press the press has this wrong perception that games are by one person and not by huge teams, comma, says Warren Spector, creator of Thief and Deus Ex. And, like, again, that is the problem because it is not. And the whole point of the interview was he tried to sit down the press with videos that he and his team put together to show, like, this art is coming from this whole team. This level is this whole team. The engineering is this whole effort. And still, the press person, and it just makes me so mad, that article. <laughs> Because it wasn't even a joke. At the end of the yeah. article, the press is like, contrary to whatever Warren Spector says, this is fundamentally clearly a Warren Spector production. And like, no. no like, like there's professional malpractice what that person says there. Because it contributes to the idea of like, and I, I've, for a summer, I worked at R&D for Will Wright, so like I'm not bashing on the guy. People will look at games and be like, that's a Will Wright game. That's a Sid Meier game. That's a Shigeru Miyamoto game. It's a Kojima game. And it's not. Obviously, they're important parts of those processes. The director has a lot of say. They have so much influence. It would not have been the same game without them. It was not a one-person effort. And from the yeah. outside, because it's easier for the customer, when I'm reading a fan magazine as a consumer, to, to see the lead singer of the band and just mm-hmm. have one voice speaking for the whole team, that's easier to understand, comprehend, follow, be a fan of, follow on Twitter, admire the quotes of, whatever. At the end of the day, it is not a one-person project. Those are hundreds of people working full-time who have like veteran-level experience. I, I never, I'm trying to avoid the military terms and... Uh, senior level status of experience in industry in their lines of professional expertise, making sure like the networking code works, the mm-hmm. renderer works, the levels are designed in a way that fits the objectives given by direction and pushback from the executives and whatever. It's got all kinds of marketing framework around it. And those were never one person projects, but a lot of people growing up from the consumer side, from the player side, see those magazine interviews, see the name on the box, see the thing that for branding reasons is popular and hot to say attached to this person from the director of blank. And then picture it as, okay, well, then I should be able to do that. And even under indie teams, and again, this is not to blame the individuals, but there are indie teams that famously are one or two people from the outside that we know who are the core team. 
What we rarely see is that even those games often had another 8, 10, 12, 20, 50 contractors connected to it on the art, on the animation, on support, on music, on Q&A, on localization, on testing, on international distribution, on publishing relations, all kinds of other stuff. And then what happens is two people in their basement like I was or in college or whatever, or just trying something weird on the weekend outside their marketing gig or whatever, are like, well, we're one or two people. Maybe we can do that. Incorrect. Is it will take a toll on people again, like devast I've seen it devastate people's savings and stuff before they come to me and are like trying to help pick up the pieces as to, all right, so I still want to keep making games. I figured out way I've been doing it's not gonna work. Help me get out of this hole. What are we doing? And this is where again, like I've been trying to some extra way I do is helping those people get back into like you can still keep making games. It doesn't have to be like that at all. It doesn't have to be financial runway. Uh you very much can do it alongside responsibly day job, other sorts of income, contract gig, freelance, part-time, whatever, uh, in balance for the rest of your life in a way that's sustainable for as long as you want to do it. And this is where it's often part of why it became such a big deal for me is that the same things people would get into making games because they had this vision for what they wanted to do, they would burn out on making games before they got anywhere close to it, which sucks. Or they would try to go or they would try to go straight for it and it'd be so polluted with beginner errors that it's Mm -hmm. more shameful to them if they hadn't done it. And so a lot of I also work people on is essentially building up milestones for okay, well and so I grew up loving Neverending Story. And like I love the flying dog dragon. And like I, I I learned enough German during a phase of my life to try to read bits and pieces of the original text and get the quotes because oh, I just awesome. love this thing so much. But like if my first game had tried to be in 1997, my version of Inspired by Neverending Story, what a disaster. What a bunch of like pixel art trash, bad, right? So you want to get mistakes out of your system. And so it's often when I'm working with people, like, okay, what's the dream thing you want to build? Okay, how do we make sure that we build you some simpler projects that you're 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 not you're not bored with, you're still interested in, but don't have that same personal attachment. Never mind if it's commercial, just because it's important to you. So by the time you're trying to solve pathfinding for it, it's your second or third time solving pathfinding. So the time you're trying to solve level design for it, it's not your, my first level dot, you know, BSP. It's that you've done levels for other games. You've got a strategy, you've got some process, you've got some errors out of your system, some beginner level stuff. And I think it is too, where it's like part of why you have to do stuff at a survivable scale. We go to a kid's piano recital and like they're playing piano and obviously better than I can play piano. I don't play piano at all, but they're doing it. And they're making, they're making mistakes. You can tell this is not a professional level concert pianist. But sometimes at that age, part of what you need is like, you're doing the right stuff. You got to keep doing this for years. That's yeah. what's going to get you to that level. Collect the people who are currently doing it at that level. And there's no shortcut besides like, get, you know, get feedback, keep doing it, try stuff, get your ideas out of you, work through the kinks, put in more practice. But it's, it's the same way that we learn nearly everything else in our lives but games have been evolving, pivoting so rapidly, and the tools have gotten so much more sophisticated, and it can seem so much more teachable. The other thing that's interesting about games as a particular medium people teach themselves in, especially on the programming side, it's kind of the other day where lots of the creative side of it, from doing art, from doing music, from doing writing poetry, nothing like just writing poems, right? Okay, me and my Microsoft Word, I type out, and some poet's going to be mad at me because there's some better tool to use besides Word. I'm typing out like, you know, my first haiku or something. I got to get the mm-hmm. syllables right. Is that any good? Who it's a poem, right? <laughs> like, like until I put it in front of human beings, get embarrassed by their feedback. I, it's so hard. And people go to schools to workshop for years on like how to be slightly better at creative writing these like, these cr- tricky, nuanced crafts, and to like get feedback on their art that they paint and they draw because like that's such a human thing. With programming, part of why I think there's so many more people who self teach in programming is that that compiler or the script interpreter or whatever kind of way you're doing stuff, your blueprint thing, etc. Two things immediately happen. If it's broken. It says it's broken. You can just see it's broken. If it's doing the wrong thing, you can see what it's doing and be like, oh, cars veering left. Okay, I got to keep changing stuff so it's not veering left. But Mm -hmm. it builds in this tight feedback loop where we can for years 
self-train to a sensible degree. Like I've learned how to write code that doesn't produce errors and produces my intended result. There's still a lot of learning to go before you're building like big, sophisticated, original projects with teams. But that level of immediate feedback in my lonesome without having to have an instructor there, without having to have someone else who's already really good at this field is fairly unique-ish out of the skills people do within programming and or implementation side, which again could mean non-programming tools. Yeah. But I think that's one of the things why we do see as much self-taught in that space. And then so again, some of those people are like, well, then why would I want to work with other people or why would I want help? And then some of the time the answer is, don't need it. Keep doing your thing. Nothing wrong with that. Go get them, Tiger. Uh, in other cases, there is more much they've hit the limit of what they can do alone yeah. or they, what they can learn on their own. They're at that stage of like, okay, well, like I say, I write code without errors and it does the intended effect. There's still probably more to writing code well with a team and collaborating and planning big projects. And that's where we help them with that set of skills if and when that's how they want to go about that stuff. Wow, that you said a lot there. That was that was great though. No, that's honestly like basically, you know, you gotta really realize what you what you're good at. You gotta realize what makes you happy and get away from things that aren't. You have to understand the realities of the industry. And there's just there's a lot of good stuff in this episode. I'm excited. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Crazy dude. Excellent. If you want, you can come work with us in home team. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, sure. <laughs> Why not? Right? Yeah. I got time. I'm I'm in Los Angeles. Nice. Yeah. Well, I'm in LA too, but obviously not all of our people are. Um, I'm yeah, also, right. yeah. Uh, I was going to say also speaking of LA, I don't know if you're in IGDA, but we're having our IGDA LA elections coming up like very soon. Uh, I've been on, I'm, I'm the chair of the board right now. I've been on the board for a few years. So we're trying to push more people to apply. One event I found really helpful was the business lawyer panel thing. I want to make sure we do something else that kind of serves that need next year too. Uh, we had the career fair in 2020 or earlier in 2019. That seemed really successful. You know, I'd want to make sure we're helping people have resume questions. We're going to try to find people to meet with those people, whatever. And it's just very much a bunch of, I mean, if we're both on the same video, this might continue into my, my version too, as to like Kevin, Brandon Corbett, what's going on in <laughs> making games? Oh, uh, what's my back? Well, I'm young. I'm, I'm only 23. So I got into games four years ago, kind of as like, I, I was into cooking. I wanted to be a chef. But I didn't want to be like a five or three, a four star Michelin. I wanted to be like, like Chipotle. I wanted to bring quality food to people, but like a lot of food, not just like some fancy little dish. So I was like, maybe I'll make an app. That's how I found Ventures, some, the game did by TV course, Unity. And then I started learning programming. And then I got to the point where I was like, you know, I like this way more than cooking. Working in a restaurant is fun and all, but this is way more fun to me. And so then from then I just started studying everything. I wanted to be a game designer. So studying like game design, studying Unity, studying Blender, studying drawing, studying the piano, studying audience, doing all this stuff, right? And then it came to point where I was like, okay, I'm pretty good at all this stuff, but not a master at anything. So recently I was like, all right, I'm just gonna trickle down on programming. I'm actually back in school doing computer science classes and I'm just going all in with programming until nice. I can get myself a job as a gameplay programmer and and then also the podcast was more of like, okay, I made some mistakes, but I I kind of want to learn from people who've done what I'm trying to do in the industry. And, and maybe I can take that information and pass it on to other people in the community who are the same shoes that I'm in. And now here we are. Nice. Right so on. That's, that's my story. And then also I have a few friends who, like one guy, he's worked on Half-Life back in the day and he's trying to make his own type of game. And so I'm helping him with that and two other people, no, three other people on the team, like artists. And we just mess around and kind of get to fulfill my dream, work in a studio, even though it's just five people. But, you know, just working at it every day and, and being realistic about the goals and stuff that I want to achieve. Excellent. I like it. 
um, out of your game, game you know, in, in the gameplay programming side of things you're looking at, are there certain types of studios, genres, types of games, platforms, et cetera, you're trying to move towards focus in or, or still kind of in the, the sampling ice creams to figure out which one to keep getting? I really love uh, shooter RPGs like um, Outer Worlds, uh, Fallout, Cyberpunk, those type of games. So yeah, so Outer Worlds is one of those games that just hit me. I love that game so much that I want to essentially create my own, but it's in a way where like learning. So like, I'm not trying to make a new RPG. Maybe in the long term, I'll turn it to something. But right now, just like, okay, so I like the way you can shoot in that game. Let me try to recreate that. Or I like the way the the quest system works or the dialogue. Let me try to recreate that. And that way I can then go to Obsidian and be like, hey, can I work for you guys? Because I've done all these things from your game. So if I could do it in that game, maybe I could do it in another game. Stuff like that that I'm slowly trying to build up. Yeah, like my portfolio and stuff. Out of curiosity, have you done, and just because sometimes it's the answer, I mean, again, it depends on what scale someone's shooting for. Have you done any modding stuff? No, so I kind of, I got game development kind of late and I got, so I didn't really get to the point where I was like, oh, I want to create that for Minecraft. Uh, yeah. So no, I never did modding, but as of right now, I just go and just open up Unreal and be like, okay, I'm going to create this and then create that. Right, right. Which, I've you done know, some I... small stuff in Unity. Like I made a mythical, I call it Mythical Awakening. It's like a small game. Not polished at all, but it's a game. You can go around, fight monsters, do some stuff. I love it. And I don't mention probably because like the the part of the sometimes experience of those studios, and granted, sometimes the answer is like, they are in Unreal. That's their answer. But like for, for many years, the modding community would be using custom tool set that Bethesda shared to the community or custom mm-hmm. level design set that, you know, id used to use for their tech and so on. And that in large cases, like for working in those big studios, part of it's like, oh, I'm familiar with that pipeline or that mode of thinking or that kind of framework mm-hmm. or that connection of ideas. And they've got particular ways to author their quests or they've got particular ways to author their dialogue and things in a way that even just seeing those and splashing around in that pool for a little bit gives us ideas of tidbits to take back into like really what we're trying to implement on the, on like the custom engine side isn't even directly how to implement a quest is how to implement that quest system and framework exactly. so i can efficiently author 300 quests without having to every time be you know writing special code hooks or something to to get achieve some effect but that's also where you know in thinking about like gameplay programmer often one of the points of entry when people are looking at stuff to do is tools programmers are often like in relatively high-ish demand okay because it seems less exciting of work or less like first obvious rung of ladder for fun as to like i want to make the gameplay shooty jumpy part <laughs> That's but nobody's ever like, oh, I want to be a tools programmer. But like, well, well there are because again, like the same way, like I, I mean, I, I know a lot of pinball people yeah. who like have more fun maintaining machines than playing pinball. Like, there's a certain part of our brain that's like, I want to do that. But like, obviously, there's always business value in if I, if the argument I can make is I can help your people be more efficient with their time, that mm-hmm. the dollar signs are obvious as to like, yeah, they're like, yeah, throw the money. <laughs> yeah, okay, how <laughs> and then you'll charge me less than it saves our net cost. Like, what? yes, I'm a fool to not do that as long as you seem trustworthy and legit, and that's a separate question, but. Yeah, like that is often a thing. And so and that's where any more often for whether it's Unreal, whether it's Unity or whatever, it's sometimes increasingly it's like building custom widgets to support authorship or secondary tools that export in a format I can import on this side. And some other stuff on our side is to in home team, we have like people write custom dialogue authoring things or custom mm-hmm. unit creation structures in a way that we can crank out more variations of stuff. And, and exactly like I said, it's not like we're like actually trying to remake something at that scale. It's it's that we're 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 getting firsthand experience with these ideas to like mm-hmm. more tech demo proof of concept stage or phase. You know, exactly. I've built a thing in comparable thing. I can have a conversation and get some. I have some, something. I'm starting from somewhere. I've shown I can actually make a thing that does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of thing. And it's it confidence. Yeah. Because like for instance in Blender, I it was funny. One of the games, of course, was like make a bridge, and it's the most simple bridge ever. And I was like, you know, what if I make the Brooklyn Bridge? So it took me like a month and a half of like working like once a week in Blender, and I made a Brooklyn Bridge that looks like. 
almost looks like it. The road part probably doesn't from it. But at that point, I was like, wow, I can actually do this if I put the time and effort. Because before I would look at a cube and be like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. But well, uh, and, a, yeah. and a lot and all those, again, the same pattern actually encouraged for a lot of people is to basically remake or clone bits or pieces that like interest you. We learn mm-hmm. so much more in the process of making it ourselves. And it's not it's not the like moral, ethical gray area of like cloning to knock off a business. It's It's the I'm a student. I learned to play a song I recognize before I play original music yeah. because that's how, that's the only way I can tune my ear against like, is this how it's supposed to sound? Cause there's a certain way it's supposed to sound or like, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned earlier, being a chef, right? Like we, we start by making a recipe that someone else came up with because we know how macaroni is supposed to take taste. Yeah, we know exactly. how soup is supposed to taste. And if it's wrong, I can't just be like, that's how I meant for it to be. Cause I'm inventing. Um, that's not where you start in the kitchen. Right. <laughs> no, you don't. And, and, but, but like, there's also such a difference. I'm glad you, and you described it as confidence, but like, to me, it's this thing where, like, okay, well, I could do that. And this is the thing I'd meet a lot of college kids who'd be like, well, I, I, I could rebuild that, so why should I bother? And the reason is because that you are adjacent to be able to figure out the problems involved with that is different than you. they're behind you. Then you have actually learned the bits, pieces, nuances of like how to do this efficiently in Blender to crank out a full bridge of shapes, forced you to get familiar with some stuff that now is in your tool set. And you know, have a next layer of what's adjacent within your ability of like, not only do I know how to do that and have done it, I'm now a step ahead of what is next to where I can see something and say, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And that will still be the ledger app until you've done it. And there's something else you can point to be like, now that's what I can do. And but yeah, it comes from just doing it. And that's been great. You've been fitting that stuff in and different skill areas and trying different stuff. Mm-hmm. No, honestly, that's why I love your whole thing with home team. Cause it's like, you are doing it. You're, you're getting that experience of being in like a studio environment with people as a team and building something. You can read about it. You can watch videos about it, but not until you're in there. Do you understand what you actually have to do? Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's some. Uh, uh, again, it's for some for us. We kind of stole off of my how I learned woodworking in high school, where we did have a textbook and we did do some assignments from it, but it wasn't very many before. It was like we need to start like cutting wood and mm-hmm. operating the tools and whatever. Uh, but there's still some basic of like you know learn some fundamentals to not cut your hands oh, off yeah. and whatever. And that's very much the same sort of thing. Like people will spend years like watching videos on YouTube mm-hmm. and reading articles online and then feel like they have a head start. And the moment they start building anything are like, aha, I am so far from anything I've learned being relevant to what I'm actually doing because I'm not yet engineer 300 on a Microsoft team working on, you know, this giant product or whatever. And it's, yeah, it's just a different set of things that we get practical about and helps us solve. And again, like for us, we call it just in time learning as to I've run into an actual problem. I'm having at my scale on my project. I can get help on that. I can work through that problem. Now the problem's behind me. And just that to me, that's where the learning happens as opposed to the, the, I don't know, the traditional lecture watching mm-hmm. kind of format stuff. And for those, and I can't, I make a video cause I'm like, I don't want to do the same song and dance 3000 yeah. times. I want to mm-hmm. work on people's particular projects and stuff. Mm-hmm. But no, yeah, yeah, I love it. And I just I feel like the game industry, if you can handle it, it's, you are set for anything else. Cause you can deal with stress. You can deal with dealing with team. You can deal with like uh, deadlines. You just, you become better, I guess, adept for life in general that, i don't know like to me i've gotten this like mindset which is like i can accomplish anything like the problem you have in front of me there's a there's a way to solve it it's going to yeah. be solved by someone so solve that problem the uh you're gonna have to work like 40 hours 80 hours a week sure no if that's gonna well, get me to where i need to go that's only that's my way i don't think well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have and, that and, way yeah yeah well, and, and and there's a variety of issues where these things obviously ripple out games in, in a very yeah like very well understood unfortunate way and so this is actually where so i talking to one of my senior engineers when I was at EALA. Um, so this is actually right after, I don't know if EA spouse is still a thing discussed 
15 years later. Uh, but there's a popular blog entry about a spouse of an EA employee about mm -hmm. like the crunch hours they're going through. And there's a bunch of stuff. I won't get too far in details because I've got too much firsthand information about people that are affected by it. But some of the things that happen, right, is that on one of these teams, and you've got people who are longer career people. We, we had people on my team who like, was the programmer for Paperboy in the arcades in the 80s. Like these were lifers in the game industry in many cases. And that also means like they might be in their 50s and have families go home to another obligations and they've got their decades underneath their belt or whatever. But so then some of us who were like fresh out of school, had no family to go back home to yet, didn't have anything else to do with our lives, quite frankly, at that age. <laughs> we weren't, at least personally, drinkers anyway. There wasn't some nightclub scene we're missing out on. I was like, yeah, go home and play video like, games. I may as well be in here doing this. Uh, one of the guys pointed out, well, what happens is we get these ripple effects. We're okay. Uh, you know, someone comes into the studio and they're raring, they're overflowing of energy. They're trying to prove themselves, get the first gigs out of this. Respect for that. However, what happens is they're trying to like, okay, well, I know I can't get a yes from my producer until I can show them this working on device. But once they see it, mm -hmm. they're going to really want to keep this. So they'll stay late. They add this new feature to be like, okay, but what if the mission involved this side quest I shoved in last night by staying here till mm -hmm. 11? And now what happens is the producer's like, oh my God, you're right. We got to have that. We also still have to hit our Tokyo dead deadline for the game for like Tokyo show. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we just need these few more animations to support this, this whole scene, this whole side quest, which right now is kind of placeholder right, just to show the concept. So now the animators and artists who did not necessarily have that agreement to like this was work that was going to fit within the budget and schedule in their time frame they got to stay late to support that now there's like well actually you know what we were going to use another sound effect for this but actually it worked better if we had some custom sounds for like that tower collapsing mm -hmm. under the melting steel audio folks we need to put in a few extra hours and all these people are on salary without overtime and like very much like and, and again it begins from an earnest place of like i didn't care i had the time i had the energy it seemed worth it to me but like mm -hmm. very much these ripple effects happen all over the place and like not just from one source I call them ripples because it's like lots of stones landing in the pond and all yeah. these ripples overlapping. And it doesn't change that like we still need the demo for E3 for GDC to hit our mm. Christmas deadline when the other work we still had planned still has to happen on the same budget. And this is where obviously a lot of stuff comes out of. Yeah. And it's also it's an artifact of us in the US where, and I say US, I mean, Western game industry, Europe has a lot of same problems. But in contrast, so I, I, I met with Sato Takeyoshi. Uh, he was a lead in cg lead on uh, silent hill 2 and like did a bunch of stuff in japan konami and so on and he would talk about like over there they hire for life basically uh and they didn't care if someone was sitting at their desk twiddling their thumbs they're like you know what they've been a great member of the team before the great member of the future right now we don't need them but they don't let their secrets transfer between companies mm -hmm. they build a sense of family it's just a very very different culture workforce versus here mm -hmm. there's very much we hired 300 people because we need them right now we don't, for pre-production on the next project, we're going to can 270 of them. They'll go find other work. It's game industry. That's what happens here. And every two or three years, it's just shredding and throwing around of people. So because that, each person needs to point to from the previous project, okay, I did, here's the part I did that should get me my next job. And there's this pressure on them to make, to shove their coolness in there. That again, is like why they're trying to stay late is to like prove their case is to like, I made a difference. It's a whole feature I did. I added that. Wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for me doing my like nighttime ninja work on it. Uh, and there's that pressure around that. And again, some other cultures don't necessarily have that same association of like, shoot, how am I gonna, where am I going to work in four years? Cause it may not be here. Uh, and that builds a different sense of these things. And it's, it's, it shreds on people. And part of the thing we wind up having as a problem is that we do wind up with some lack of discipline, maturity, production process, et cetera, in a way that like Microsoft, IBM, Apple, other companies with just honest to God engineering teams and production and so on have had to solve because they have people stick around into their different stages of life. And it's a bit like, again, the, the people outgrow game jams situation. A lot of what happens is people like right around 30, 35, et cetera. And not always, not to be over the ages. There's people who are exceptions to that bell curve, um, start to feel like 
well, shoot, I need a more stable job for what I'm doing in my life mm -hmm. right now. And it's not even to blame my employers and my managers or my coworkers. It is to say, I'm going to take my same set of skills, get paid a better salary and better benefits at a company that is less likely to erupt into a volcano of layoffs in two to three years. And they just pivot into being a project manager at like laser engineering company into being a designer with some other kind of firm making, you know, manufactured goods or some other thing. And it's, but it, it drains us of our seniority, of our experience mm -hmm. and veterancy of, of people, again, apologies for using that word, but the uh, people who have like those decades behind them, they pivot out. Um, and it just winds up being this big old, like, I hate to call it this grinder uh, in a way that's doing yeah, cool work. It makes neat output, but it, it's it, cool, it, like, it so often starts from people with positive intentions. They're like, well, I don't mind it. And it's got this. Yeah, I guess you're right. I never really thought of it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yeah. And it, it's tricky because like what it, like for so many parts of the process, like it may actually make the game better sometimes. And it makes these very difficult, constant fuzzy trade-offs. And part of it was interesting to me about because it was right after the EA spouse lawsuit, that specific studio was under extra scrutiny. And I would, I would like, I'm, I was young. I'm just trying to learn everything I can. I would stay like, just like studying everything I could find and like reading about stuff and going through old docs and whatever I could like had legal rights internally to peek at. And then I would have like someone poke their head in. Cause it'd be like six Oh three and like, Hey Chris, are you working on your stuff or our stuff? And my concern, I was, I was like, shoot, if I'm working on my outside projects, am I going to like try to own it? Am I giving it my IP? Is this risky? Should I not be on the computers? But like, I was just trying to study and just learn or whatever I could to make use of my time. And I was like, what are the implications of how I answer this question? And, and because of the situation they're under scrutiny, they're like, if it's our stuff, we have to kick you out because we don't have mandate to be running extra hours here to be doing this. We have to run a like consistent, predictable, reliable ship about people's energy expenditures, et cetera, and costs. And we're not basically, it is, we're not paying overtime. So we can't be doing overtime. You have to get the hell out of here if it's our stuff. And like, that was neat to see where again, like a company at the level of scrutiny has to figure out ways sometimes to operate in yeah. those kind of ways from pressures, from literally lawsuits. It's not like they're doing it from goodness of their hearts, but like sometimes we miss that, like the giant agencies for as much as we pick on the things we dislike about them. And again, I chose that wasn't where my future was. They have to, in some cases, be a little bit more and i'm sure the exceptions a little bit more sorted out about the stuff in a way that like man it's not like the team of five people are not also destroying themselves but sometimes with like less oversight of adults in the room who are like from the hr perspective being like yeah it's unsustainable we gotta get this bill out of here uh <laughs> yeah i bet that happens a lot oh man yeah. It's just tough. It's hard because like it's supposed to be like a fun thing to do. Essentially, if you're like, "Oh, I'm working in games," but it, it isn't. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of you need to get done things done on deadline, and if you don't get it done, and we're gonna have to like, work you harder or something like that. And it's like, eh, I don't know about that. The restaurant's kind of like that. The restaurant industry. So I mean, part of it is like you. I've been taught because I've been in a restaurant server for like four years. You just kind of deal with it. Or at least that's, I don't know. I've been raised with this condition. Just deal with it and smile while doing it. Right. But it, it's, it's, I've seen people get destroyed from it. And that's just like the restaurant level. I can't imagine doing it because you get overtime there, working overtime and not getting that money. Right. I don't know how that affects you psychologically. And it, there's a reward out of it. That one doesn't. It's more of just like you're taking stuff out of a, of a, a pool of water and nothing's replenishing it. Yeah. I, and, and it's, I, I don't know. And I, anyway, yeah, I, I, at every single level of it, it's complicated for me as to, I, I hate that that's just going on. Part of what I like about IGDA's mission and part of what's important yeah. to home team and so on is being very anti-crunch. We literally have a self-care consultant uh, that works with us in home team who like helps encourage people to be balancing their life out with the stuff mm -hmm. and not doing it sustainably because 
even just at a practical level, again, what people want out of making games, they will not usually get to in like a three-year time frame. It's going to take more time. It's sustainable. Uh, uh, former manager of mine at startup, we always say like, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, you can do something certain way if you're like in a race for like a deadline, maybe, but ultimately we've got to pace ourselves to keep existing because, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, it's not going to get done. I mean, CD Projekt Red just delayed their game again to, I guess, yep. Void Crunch, right? Or no, I, I mean, I think everyone's right on the money of suspecting it's just going to be more weeks of crunch. And, yeah. and part of what happens, too, it's, it's, it's I'm reminded, too, of my buddy in high school who's on the wrestling team, and he had a speeding problem. And so what happened was, okay, he lives, let's say, 10 minutes from the school. We got, like, a 3 o'clock practice. We had an early out, so he's got to get back to school. He'll leave with, like, 9 minutes to get there, but he'll speed and get there. And now next time he's thinking, I can get there in nine. So he leaves with mm. eight. And now he's speeding faster until like there's literally an auto accident. And like, this is very much what happens of like, okay, well, for practically speaking, zoomed out, we've got decision makers, business people in suits who we make fun of, but they're also essential to operating as an actual functioning business in an industry. We're kind mm. of shuffling papers, looking at how much work gets done in three months. And what they're looking at as well, based on the reality of the hours people can put in, have put in, do put in, under whatever circumstances, because maybe they don't have other options. Maybe this is one to be connected to this property IP, whatever, whatever the deal is What they're logistically planning around is the expectation of like our throughput is X hours per week for these individuals uh, in a way that obviously is like at the limits of literal psychological fatigue, people's health falling apart from eating crunch food at night where they order in late food uh, divorces. Like I've seen a lot of divorces from crunch and stuff like these are very real lasting mm-hmm. craters in people's personal lives, personal development, personal health, etc. Really, really damaging, unfortunate stuff. Hate to see it. But, it, but like, it, it's never quite as simple as the like, oh, then don't do that. There's, there's all these other <laughs> factors at play of so many yeah. people trying to do the thing that they think is going to help their career, help them get the bonus or help them, you know, move up in the hierarchy or, or uh, fulfill the one thing they want to do. We've got, um, yeah, anyway, so this is also where, so even out of, one of the things that I also met was, I wanted to meet people who've been around for decades doing it. Like the kind of games that they got into, uh, I met, my first industry interview was many years ago, it might have been like 2009 or something, it was Warren Robnett of Atari Adventure. And okay. he like created the genre that like Zelda's in. Mm. That's pretty wild. Wow, that's big, uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, it was literally like a square on the screen that picks up an arrow for a sword and pokes the dragon that kind of looks like a duck. And it's comical, right? It's like single color backgrounds and stuff. It's not an Atari hundred. It's a miracle he pulled off on the hardware. It's still just like, you know, he joked about like his kids just look at it and they're like, dad, what you did is not important. And he's like, I swear it was. You don't understand. But like, it changed uh, the world, guys. You you know, it know. totally did. It totally did. <laughs> But like part of what I was trying to figure out was like I interviewed people who had been in the industry back in the day, and I was like, why aren't they doing games now? What? Why? Why is why is the Paperboy guy still around? Why is Warren Robin doing something else in his life now? He was like in research at H. Hewlett Packard or University of something or other, and and it was much like he doesn't really care personally for what games are now, how they get made. It's different than the games he got into it for. And I started seeing how often this was too of like the arc someone has in their life, right? So in the whole generation, of people in my click plus or minus some years grew up playing Mega Man. And that kind of stuff, bunch of pixel platformers, and this is where you see an outlet of this in the indie games as to like, there's not a strong commercial case for more pixel platformers. Occasionally, getting they come out and they nail it for the most part. Just a bunch of stuff that like zero dollars ever kind of come out of. Oh yeah. But like the kind of games that are currently monetized, they see stuff that a new market is appreciating, whether it's in-app purchase, ad-supported, mobile stuff, multi-touch, motion control, whatever the thing is of the year, and they're like, those aren't the kind of games I got in this for. 
And very much what I started to see was the people who were lifers, who were sticking around the industry for decades on end, had actually sort of got the separation from the work, not even a negative way, but it's like they go to work, they make the models they ask them to make, they go to work, they solve the design challenges they need to solve. It's like I said, or game, the lead designer earlier who was like, Jar Jar Binks racing, what's it going to be? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, my, I have a job to fulfill a certain need. And I, I'm reminded too of uh, Rod Humble from The Marriage, famous experimental game art thing back in like, oh, I want to say 07, might have been plus or minus. What's 06, it called? 06, 08, whatever. But The Marriage. And it was this early, like, indie is a weird word for it, but it's an experimental art game thing where you got like blue circles and purple squares and there's some gray boxes and their movements have to do with like, his and his wife's relationship and social settings as they've matured throughout their lives and stuff. And it's like, this is a discussion piece of like, why do they move that way? What does it mean? At the same time, this guy, Rod Humble was the executive vice president of the Sims division for expansion packs. And like, I just remember some interview was like, Hey, Rod, Mr. Humble, do you see some tension between this like bizarro experimental art indie thing you're doing and that you're making, I don't know, selling furniture expansion packs for sims at the same time and he was like no not at all like there is a market for this just like there's for like mcdonald's fries to be made yeah. consistently and on time at a certain price and like that's a job over here is this thing that i think should exist in the world that would be like irresponsible to treat as a business like that's not a business don't that's not yeah. that doesn't have that same demand of more couches for sims and like i, I think that sometimes we, we miss this and so it's also we have people in home team who have day jobs in industry doing uh, they're a producer, they're a game designer, they're a programmer, they're a whatever. Over here, they do their goofy, weird thing that has no place, no place at all in commercial industry anymore of like, uh, I don't care if the market's saturated for Galaga knockoffs. I don't care if there's like, I don't know who wants to buy a plat pixel platformer. I feel like making that. It would be irresponsible for me to try to yank my team in that direction because there's not a market for that right now. And or it is saturated and or it's not our core strengths. And it gives them an outlet. Uh, my favorite example is we had a guy who did data analytics for like one of the top paid iOS games in the world. Um, wow. But like in our group, he was making a, a physics-based picnic packing simulator. And it was like, <laughs> just having a ball of a time. Yeah, it uh, and it's exactly what it sounds like. And like, there's, there's, there's no business around what that was, but it was fun to make. He had fun making it. And I even think sometimes about these things, almost like uh, I use the model trains kind of metaphor of like, if you've ever had someone take you to their basement and show you their model train set, you're just like, I don't, this is not doing it. Well, I don't care. Right. Like, like legitimately there is not an audience for this. There's not, a, there's a reason why there's not like true. a 24 seven channel of like, check out these train sets. Check you build it because yeah. it's fun to make yeah. you build it because you enjoy building it. And, a and certain you build a story around it sometimes. You're like, this is the city, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. No. And then exactly. Like there's a certain satisfaction we get from making things that can be very separate from what's the player's experience. And there's games we've made that like, we don't know if it's any fun to play and kind of don't care. It was a fun thing to build. Maybe we'll worry yeah. about the other problem on another project, but like, this one had some fun puzzles to solve. And if we're not careful about, we don't make a distinction between is this a business or is this something I'm doing for, for kicks and giggles and enjoyment. We can very much get caught up in like, well, the game idea I've always had was this. Maybe I'll try to have a business of that. And without any sort of responsible due diligence on like, will I be able to sell that? Is that a thing I can justify further investment in? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, sometimes the answer may be no. And it doesn't mean don't build it. It means like Rod Humble, you keep a job, making something there's a market for on the side, you do whatever the hell you please because you can keep the lights on because you're doing this other thing most of the hours. It's it's just the art of like expressing yourself too. It's like sometimes oh, yeah. we I think the problem with storytelling in video games is you get lost in the details of business and money that you end up making something that's not even what you wanted to make. You just made something that you think will make tons of money, and you lose the whole. I'm just trying to express what I wanted to make, and it's like you really have to. 
sit down and be like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? How am I going to be able to afford my life while also yep. expressing myself through this game? Or maybe I do need to get a job and then work in games in a different way. But it's it's a lot of self-reflecting. And in yep. this conversation, we've talked about a variety of things, a variety of perspectives, and, and how each little thing has a ripple effect. And you really... To really understand something, you have to dive deep and hear from everyone and try everything and just do everything because you'll never know until you've experienced it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, and actually, that was the other thing. Also, my other sort of trick up my sleeve and why I started interviewing people even before I left my jobs and things is like every day I would try to schedule a lunch or an afternoon and just sit down with somebody else out of the hundreds of people who are around just to pick their brains about like, mm-hmm. okay, the line of work that you're in, the things that you've seen, the companies you've been at, what are some pros and cons? What have you liked and disliked? What was a surprise? What was contrary to what you expected? And this is a classic thing. I don't remember some Dan Gilbert or who it was. One of these is kind of Ted, Ted talk, you know, pop psych book writing people who are like, our brains are terrible at predicting what we're going to make happy about. Yeah. The, the best you can usually do besides trying it yourself. And sometimes on a time scale, you can't is talk to somebody else who's doing it and be like, tell me about that. What's it like being you? And it will not be one-to-one the same, but it'll be a Never. much better metric to triangulate a few people you would discuss that with. Hey, you've mm-hmm. been a producer for 20 years. Talk to me about that. You'll get so much more information talking to three or four of those people about like, I like this part of the work, this part I dislike in a way that like your mind can't anticipate is going to be wrong fundamentally about. And I'm also a strong believer in, I think I mentioned some other productivity audiobook thing, but like when Laura and I are looking forward to live in LA, we do our like research, we go visit different places in a given year, our lease is coming up and like every place has some one-star reviews, right? But I'm like, what are the one-star reviews for? And I'm willing to live with that. Some places it's like a, a rude landlord. It's the cockroaches. It's the hot water. It's the noisy neighbors. It's the something. Is that the downside I'm willing to live with? And that's where in picking our career paths, right? It's like, okay, there's downsides of being an engineer, producer, an audio person, an uh, artist in or out of game industry, et cetera. Which one's got the downsides I'm cool with? Because there's going to be downsides. Yeah, always. But, but, but which downsides are the ones that like, I don't mind having to meet and be you know, charismatic all the time, or I don't mind the monotony of, or mm-hmm. you even joke with like the, the people who live in the audio bay, they don't get to listen to music while they work because they have to use their ears all day for their sound effects and stuff. That's a downside to that work of like, oh man, I sure love music. I'm going to be an audio professional. Mm-hmm. Careful. Like, You're the one job in the studio that can't listen to whatever you feel like all day, unlike the rest mm-hmm. of us did. So yeah, uh, but it's not obvious to talk to them about like, oh yeah, you wouldn't expect it, but uh, I listen to less music than anybody else on the team because you're like why? But you're in the audio engine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or I listen to the same ten seconds over and over again, and it's back to that sort of thing of you know. <laughs> you just perfect. lose yourself. You're like, I have heard too many sound effects. No more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got the bullet shell hitting grass, hitting concrete, hitting stone, hitting shoes, hitting just like oh, just guys. Yeah, to, yeah that yeah. sounds like pain and suffering. It's 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 not. I don't want to go through. It's not what I choose. Somebody else loves that, and yeah, it's hard to tell you to put that shoe on, walk around a little bit, and be like, does it fit? Is it snug? Is doesn't it mean it's a bad shoe. It means it doesn't fit in my foot. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And we uh really dive deep into um different perspectives and dichotomies because i've i've really stressed this with people because like i've come across as like sometimes i'm not set in certain ways they're like oh i thought you believed this one thing i was like yeah but i got new information and now i I don't and to me that's just natural that's been me my whole life to other people it's like no you got to stay a certain way and i was like honestly the way i've enjoyed my life like i've honestly i wake up pretty like like happy like there's like no sense of worry or stress it's more like i'm living the life that i created for myself nice and i'm okay with certain things like ending or things going wrong or or certain situations because i've 
I'm just accustomed to that's how the world is and life things will change and that's okay. I'm okay yeah. with moving like be like water, like Bruce Lee said. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. that's not something you're born with. It's something you have to train yourself to to really accept new ideas, to accept that maybe what I'm doing isn't gonna work and how can I change it? And instead of like as I did a podcast with someone else and they stay they said that like it's kinda hard to sell someone, hey, um actually even you mentioned earlier, like um yeah, I'm not good at this, but I'm not going to like change it because I'm going to look like a fool and nobody wants to look like a fool. But I'm right. like, yeah, but you understand that if you do make that change, your life will be so much better. And who cares what they, your opinions are? Because if you become good at that new thing, they're going to say you're awesome and it's a great thing you changed. So it's it's another thing too to also learn to listen to yourself and not the opinions of other people. Because sometimes even what you think in your head is on opinions from other people who said you can't do it. You got to train that part of you that says you can and then do what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Big. Uh, one of my little side projects is for personal reasons, but uh, stoicism in the classical sense, as opposed to the sort of neo-stoic or the way it's been kind of adopted by the business community, asking about ROI. But I did an adaptation of some public domain translations of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, and there's a Ooh, point yeah. in there about this thing about like when there's a bramble in the path and there's like thorns in your way, you walk around them, right? Mm-hmm. You don't like stand there and yell at them or concentrate how angry you are of the inconvenience of like there's thorns in my way. You go around it. And how often it feels like people get hung up on these things where it's like something is not the way it ought to be. And they're probably right. It shouldn't be. Why are the thorns yeah. in the path? That shouldn't be there. But like being mad doesn't get you past. It doesn't make them move. Exactly. You doesn't. go around it or you move them, you cut them down and you do something about it. But just the, they getting heated up over that in particular, not helping your situation or for anybody else. Yeah. And like I say, it's, it's a thing I think some people maybe either miss or the other, but I don't know how much this is like we say on the, the, if you've, splashed around enough or at least survive the filter of like who's willing to tolerate that level of machine pushback to teach yourself some programming you're used to the idea of like errors are part of the feedback process yeah. of like it didn't work i tried a thing i saw it did that's not what i meant let me choose some other stuff it's just a different attitude than the, the this expectation of i'm not going to waste a human being's time showing them this paper until it's perfect shoot i got red marks it's too late the problems are made the mistakes are done oops move on <laughs> it's just not a constructive mentality for adult scale problems yeah, no. It's time for us to all grow up. Yeah. And mature. Accept your failures and just be better. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and or if nothing else, just adapt to any given time. Obviously, this is the other bit for the game industry. And part of why games keep changing underneath people is like, I've got friends who got in during coin op era in the 90s who like, games have changed a lot since then. Oh, yeah. Uh, people who came in to work on like the MMO wave, the casual game wave, the motion controller wave, the connect wave, the VR subscription wave. model, the ad base, the VR mm-hmm. stuff, whatever it is. Um, one of the upsides to this is for anybody coming in new sometimes is they might feel like, shoot, oh my gosh, some people have decades experience doing this. And I'm like, yeah, but they're at most three years ahead of you on the current thing because nobody had a head start before mm-hmm. this new platform existed or the new model existed, the new graphic or whatever. And the constant reinvention of realizing like how everybody's having to keep restarting in a way that again, like, yeah, it helps to have some previous experience, but not as much as it sounds like, cause it's not like you're competing in the auto industry and like they have nailed some of those problems or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Everybody keeps, you know, turning the whole thing upside down. They're like, okay, well now what do we got? Cause this is a whole different, we're selling different customers in a different way, building a different design spec with different tools, delivering in a different monetization model, different set of constraints, different means of press reach, different means of everything mm-hmm. keeps flipping things upside down in a way that some people are like, nah, I'm done relearning this stuff. And other people are like, well, that's, that's part of the gig uh, is that mm-hmm. there was a old uh, graphics, Windows game programming book by Andre Lamoth, who wrote great textbooks back in the day, but one of them was like he was teaching people WinG, which WinG is the predecessor to DirectX, uh, or direct like the DirectDraw stuff. Dang, and 
And like somebody, well, this is like the code, this is the books I was learning from, but like somebody in one of his little like workshops he was running was like, okay, well, here's the thing, Mark or Andre or whoever, whichever author this was. It was like, I'll learn this, but it better be the last time I have to learn a new version of game draw code. He's like, you're in the wrong industry. A hundred percent. This is going to change. It's going to change 12 more times in your lifetime. Get out of here. If that's your attitude about it. Like, (laughs) this is not how this works here. The tech keeps changing. The software keeps changing. The hardware keeps changing. If you don't want to keep it, like some people love that part of why I like is I have to keep like figuring out another way to do things. And I kind of find some enjoyment in that, but other people they're like, no, I, I want to develop a certain set of skills and just use that forever. And it is harder to carve a niche doing that particular thing in this line of work than some other fields. And it's mm-hmm. not even like a pros cons better, worse thing. It is a different strokes, different folks. If that's what you want, then you want to not think about relearning the new tech constantly. This is a rocky space to be in. To, in terms of picking our battles. Yeah, that's that's a big one because it's like a lot of people get in being like, oh, you know, I just learned how to make games and I'll be set for life. And it's like, this isn't like any other job. And like I've explained it to some people too. They're like, how are you always working? I'm like, because I'm trying to build something that's creative and my own thing. Some other things you can just check off the boxes and you're done for the day. You've, you've done what you needed to do. You've already learned in school. Like, But it's it's a whole different thing to constantly want to learn. And it's, I don't know, I guess maybe it's been the people who've been around, but they have that kind of mindset. It's like, oh, no, no, school. I'm done with school. I'm done with learning. Who wants to learn? Who wants to pick a book? Who wants to? I'm like, that's not me. Yeah. And and, and to go back to the earlier point of what a difference it makes when you're learning something because it's going to make the thing you're building cooler or neater or do the Mm -hmm. thing you want it to. It's just such a different vibe than, you know, and back to our rewards, incentives, gamification question of like, Okay, well, and the reason I read was because I got graded on if I read these books. Mm-hmm. That is such a different relationship to books. Then, like, this is a vessel of information I want to have inside me because yeah. it's going to enable me and empower me. And it's almost like at a less absurdist level in a game where you'll pick up, like, the book. And now I can run through walls or now I can, like, sprint faster or now I have this new power because this tome had something in it. And obviously, there's very much like when we're fishing through materials and anymore, it's rarely books and paper, but it's internet tutorials and YouTube videos, et cetera, because I'm, I'm shaking the tree to find where is that thing that's going to enable me to do this thing I don't yet know how to do. And I can become a person who knows how to do that. And it's a different relationship is to like finding information and putting it inside me and becoming someone who is equipped with that plugged in that upgrade on my system. Yeah. yeah. And it just makes life overall better. Because you're like, oh, I can do this. I want to do this for that. Or you just get more excited about life because you're leveling up like in a game. You know, when you like those new abilities, you're like, oh, I couldn't do that before. But now, now I can. Well, and, and this was part, was part of what inspired me too from just having a, fortunately, I have the, the, the privilege to work for some very smart people. And so like that early company that was doing Playcraft at the time later became PopCap San Francisco after I left. But like, they were like, yeah, um, the right way to implement this is this tech platform none of us know yet. So we're going to learn it and use that. And like, and this is, such an like again for game people they're all used to like everything we're doing is and they're like well this is the right answer we're gonna forget that one we're gonna learn that um and this is actually one of the aversions that at a silicon valley level which is where this business existed some of their aversion to programmers as the company founder is that a programmer disproportionately depending on you know the background their focus etc may be like well i know php and c plus plus those are my hammers so that's how I'm going to fix this. And it's like, that is the wrong way for this particular mm. networking problem, website design issue, customer delivery, automation, like that should be Python or that should be back and loaded through AWS or whatever. Mm. And there's a stickiness. And part of why sometimes in those industries, they literally will take some of their company founders and be like, we want a non-engineer here is because we want someone who's going to fire the person who only knows 
the answer 10 years ago and hire the person who knows the answer that's going to apply 10 years from now. And it's got the agility in a way that some people are not in the mindset of like, like fortunately, again, I had a boss who, despite being fundamentally trained partly as an engineer, was very much like, this is the answer now. This answer didn't exist five years ago. Let's learn it and do it. And mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, what a smart person. What a smart guy. I want to be like him. <laughs> exactly. I want to be like that. Yeah, yeah. One of the yeah. greatest things I ever heard when I was younger was from, I don't know if it was just like a business guy or just a really old, successful guy. And he was like, the key to really like doing great things is to do the opposite of what everyone else around you is doing. And like, I was like, oh, and, but then he said at the end, he was like, but well, you're not going to listen to that anyways. And then I, that hit me so hard because I was like, I started to see things around me. I was like, yeah, you're right. Like if I really want to learn stuff and be the top of my class, I have to study hard every night or like, or put in the hours, make sacrifices. And some of those things, it's just like, you got to do it to get where you want to be. Yeah, th there's a certain element to uh, uh, early on in college. I was like, I don't know, my first semester grade check-in was like, I don't know, had some mid Bs or whatever. And I was asking a classmate about like, well, that seems like, I mean, the school here is kind of notoriously hard in this field. So maybe it's like what everyone else is doing. He was like, don't compare yourself to other people. Where you're like never going to exceed the people you happen to randomly be around. Don't make your bar how well everybody else is doing yeah. and what's working for them. And or there's also just this classic bit of like, you know, do what everybody else is doing if you want what everyone else is getting. And mm -hmm. if which one is different than what else is getting, again, it's not even, and you've heard me couch this a thousand times disclaimers, not even a judgment on them, but it's to say, I want something different than what they're going for. My yeah. priorities are different. My values are different. You know, I prioritize doing work I feel ethical about or making something that I like the output of or that I feel invested in, even if it's a trade-off. And again, mm -hmm. this is also acknowledging some privilege. And I was in the same position to make the same privilege trade-off of like earn less than maximum capital potential in exchange for, but I've got my thing to show. And that's also a point where like sometimes people look at, okay, well, I made my game. You know, it didn't do great from a business perspective. But if the alternative was, like we talked about, they made a game that made a lot of money, but they never actually scratched their itch or they got their thing out of them. It's almost like if you picture, what would I have to pay someone else to build the thing for me that I want made? And then unless I earn that amount of money and pay someone else to do it, there's no other way that things are going to come into existence. So part of their profit, part of their gain, part of their compensation is like this thing I wanted to exist in the world now does. How cool I was able to pull it off in some kind of way that like, made it work for a while. And maybe the next plan is like pivot into something else, but it doesn't mean they regret that time because how else was that going to come into existence? Mm -hmm. And they weren't going to do it. Someone's got to do it. So why not be you? Yeah. Well, and, and the usual bit of like part of why I also encourage designers to learn at least enough script or code to prototype, to smash out ideas to get them playable is there's always something lost in translation to like, I have this sweet whiteboard drawing. I wrote a document about it. It's going to have so many thousands of little subtle questions, right? I mean, it's like, I think my first experience was on a big team where the designer was like, okay, we want a silencer upgrade. And I'm like, how much does that cut off the sound radius? Like, does it echo mm -hmm. down the hallways? Does it block people through doors? If you miss someone with it, do they turn around? Like there's all these nuanced questions about implementation that if you just hand the engineer to say, we want a silencer, give us a silencer. They're making a like, and it's not, you know, it leaves some autonomy, obviously, but like there's discussions to be had about why one of these versus the other, how it's going to yeah. affect the player. And, yeah, it's just it's a different way to relate to it. That's more obvious once you've dealt with the technical side of it as to how many little choices you get to play with on that. That'll fundamentally affect the experience in an interesting way. How based on how they're made. And so if you're a designer who's doing that, you can like iterate and be like, no, that's not how I want it. I can see yeah, that there's a question buried in here. I can answer <laughs> it differently. <laughs> just gotta find it. Like with our home team members, like I say, it's it's something where everybody retains their own stuff. And this is also where, ooh, we didn't really get into this, but I guess we're still recording, so who knows which pieces of this universe will keep. <laughs> but it's, it's genuinely an issue. We're like, so uh, unless someone has signed over rights to something, they do not own rights to it. It doesn't even matter if you've paid mm -hmm. them for it. You have no legal intellectual property claim to it. 
And so part of what happens is literally like our policy of engineers keep the code they wrote, artists keep the art they drew, audio people, like that's the default. That is the law already. That is always the case. All mm -hmm. we're claiming is that like, okay, we can keep it in the portfolio stuff. That's what people are agreeing to. It's going to be freeware. That's what they agree to. The freeware game can stay up. That's what they're agreeing to. Beyond that, each individual still owns the rights to their respective stuff. And part of what happens is if people just like informally slam some stuff together, some other students, met some people online or in a meetup, do some stuff, release a game. If that musician a month later decides, I want that game taken down, they have full rights to get the game taken down because the person who submitted it does not own IP rights to use that music. A mm -hmm. uh, person who released it does not actually get transfer of rights and ownership to use that art, to use that other code, et cetera. Uh, and didn't get documented approval to yada yada. Yeah. And these again are like things where we kind of like ignore until it becomes a problem, but sometimes it becomes a big problem uh, in a way that one of the things I do like was highlighted from the movie was the degree to which like one of the games, I think it was Phil Fish, has got held up by like a third of their team who was a student at the time or whatever, just like wouldn't release their part of it uh, wow. and like insist on either making some profit or holding it up or like getting tied up in complicated legal situations around that in a way that ideally if it's being done as a business these things are sorted out as opposed to like it's a game jam and everyone understands the context for this or it's home team we've all mm. agreed it's freeware it's for practice and keeping our respective pieces but it absolutely blows up on people especially at the we'll just try and release it and see and then suddenly in the rare lightning strike case where there's some non-trivial money to be had and if nothing else like making a sequel licensing it to switch port whatever mm -hmm. and then there's like well, okay what percent of this is bethany what percent of this is charles and, and it's a very difficult question because it's not just about who put in the most hours. It might be that like Bethany did the least time, but she spent her whole career becoming a, like a really great musician. The music a really important part of this like rhythm game, et cetera. And it is a tough calculus to figure out after the fact versus like having clear agreements in place of we are mm -hmm. buying out the rights to this, or here's the royalty agreement up to the recuperator, the whatever kind of things that when you start working with business advisors are like, there's ways that these get solved. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's always better to be prepared beforehand for something than to it, deal with it when it comes. It varies. And this is also why home team, we spell the stuff up, up front in our membership agreement. And like someone doesn't get past that wall with some sort of delusion of like, I'm going to make it real big selling this game that these people are like working on for, for me or whatever is like most things that get made game jams, home team projects, college projects would not happen if step one was we have to get you all to sign contracts to the rights to the thing and have sorted out your intellectual property and your ownership stake in this company and who has the rights to refusal on a sequel or a licensing agreement to like a blanket or whatever. And like as comical as that sounds like these are things that come up and, and like non-trivially we look at a case of like Minecraft, which obviously started as like this guy doing this thing, which is, and he's pretty open to front, like tweeted at the time about like a knockoff of Infiniminer with some other dwarf fortressy elements and some other stuff and not to disclaim that like he did important significant stuff on it. But when eventually the thing sells for $2.5 billion to Microsoft or four or whatever it was. And there are questions about like how important were particular individuals who joined that project after it was less risky and they needed to have that stuff sorted out ahead of time. Cause there can't be an argument over, you know, plus or minus a few hundred grand here or there. Yeah. Cannot happen. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. And yeah. And it is, oh, it is the, goodness. it is the exception of the exception of the exception for a hundred reasons as to things aren't usually like that, but there are things in the middle where people very much feel like this is going to define my career if I can be attached to this or not. And people inevitably wind up feeling very conflicted. And this, I mean, this happens in all industries. I mean, the, like the voice actor from GTA four, very annoyed, despite all the, you know, 
agreements in guild places and things about how he was compensated for the success of that game. I think even though some articles I saw the other day, but like guy who played Walter White in Breaking Bad, I made like $225,000 or something per episode, which sounds like a lot compared to the money Breaking Bad has made. He might be like, why am I still working anything again the rest of my life? And it sounds like a lot of money then, but like he's got a whole life to sustain. And we also see these bits about the uh, uh, Hollywood accounting here in LA, of course, where Mm -hmm. someone will get like, okay, my agreement is percent royalty from this movie's profits. And then Hollywood's got all these like shady things that they do to make sure that like, technically Harry Potter never made money. Three of these star Wars movies were totally just a, a hole in the ground, never profited. And it's because there's all kinds of things and structures they do with self dealing with buying their own cardboard boxes for the stunt actors with all these just like ludicrous moves that they do. So people who had the royalty agreement, which sounded smart, get shafted or other times their whole wow, career is like, knew- it's a huge problem. Uh, and, and like really frustrated people. And on the other side, occasionally there's a case of like someone who like declined getting paid up front in favor of royalty on Lion King soundtrack or something, still making money off this. But like, even so in the game space, right? We picture this where, Somebody, and I just know some of these somebodies, they've moved on to their life and done other things with it, made some miscellaneous piece of Skyrim. At the time, it was like, I don't know, Oblivion did well, Marwin did well. We know this is legit. At the time, we didn't know it was going to sell on the next like three or four console generations with a VR port, with mm-hmm. like re releases, with HD upscales, that they would keep reselling the same product, making a just staggering sum of money off the same IP. And I can guarantee you, like most of those people like who did the character model got paid one time, right? Like yeah, you're right. the person who did like the bit, the piece, unless they're like a company owner, they got paid to make this piece and, and they may still be proud. People are seeing their work. They may or may not regret or frustrate, feel frustrated, but there's probably some element of like, God, there's still like, there's this whirlwind of money. And I feel like, such so a, much money. I feel like you're such a schmuck mm-hmm. for like, you know, uh, six months later, I was looking for my next gig and it's mm-hmm. just, it's a, and the, for hundreds of people, right? That's the case. Mm-hmm. And it's the exception, not the rule, but these are things that, that as soon as you start splashing around in commercial waters, you wind up with people who feel burned regardless of how you try to spell it out. It gets complicated very quickly. You get all these nuances about things that make it rocky. But, you know, if it's at commercial scale, these are the things that have to be sorted out somehow. And part of what is also gets really dangerous or sketchy in the games space with a lot of beginners is that they don't usually have, like say someone at a AAA studio might, enough formal shared assumption of how this works to have a sense for what's normal how what agreement i'm getting into eyes open what the arrangement is accepting the trade-offs how this fits into my longer career arc etc and instead becomes a case of again just like super fired up upset over like that doesn't seem right after the fact from how that played out and then just like wrecks people um but anyway not not to make anything sound like (laughs) negative but it's really complicated from the amount of uncertainty involved and this is where obviously like business people are trying to trade on uncertainty in terms of like, we're taking bets. That's the nature of this business. Yada, yada, yada. There will be losses. That's also why we're not going to be penalized for if the game doesn't sell. Cause the usual case is that it never makes back its cost. There's an old Chris Taylor video and I guess we're still rambling. So maybe I'll even keep this on our bit. Uh, let me find this Chris Taylor gas powered games. And like I say, there was actually a good IGD Los Angeles talk from game lawyers recently but this is a really fascinating talk from this circumstance here of he had set up this mm. podcast interview and this is kind of half depressing, but I think it's a difficult, important thing to see. Yeah. Only 48,000 people have watched more people should watch this video. And so anybody, if we distribute this audio as a podcast ourselves, I mean, Matt chat 182, Chris Taylor on the fall of gas powered games. It's a free video on YouTube from 2013. Really fascinating case 
Whereas uh, this guy, founder of Gas Power, made like D- uh, Dungeon Siege and Supreme Commander, like these pretty high profile PC games. Yeah. It hit at such a timing that like the Kickstarter was not going to fund. It was just not going to mm-hmm. happen. But he had already set up this interview. And so he's sort of out there just like just talking about like the realities and the difficulties and the cost of like running a studio and paying these people and the costs involved and how people assume like, oh, maybe it'll work. And he's like, it will not. It will just not. That is not how this works. And explaining how much even the case for like games you grew up playing, we may not have realized are often really existing check to check on deals with publishers on like, okay, well, you'll fund our next game to be able to deploy it as part of your brand. And then we're going to go chase the next check for how we make the next thing happen to keep our team fueled. And like, that's how you responsibly mitigate risk at that layer for the fact that any given game may not be profitable, may not make back its costs at all, but also puts them in the situation of people like, well, but your game was really popular and successful. Why do you still need money? Why are you hitting up Kickstarter? Yeah. And it's like the only thing that's existed in the first place was some other eggheads doing actuarial math. were like, statistically, this seems more likely a bet to pay off than not. And we're going to take a chance here. And that is a whole layer of business hidden from consumers, but very, very frank, hard chat to listen to for an hour 14 you know, he just talks about stuff that normally people aren't talking about because it's not fun. It's not exciting. It's not the guy who just like had this hit success, you know, solve his money problems for life or whatever. And then the other side to these, not the, uh, my usual blah, 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 disclaimers. Um, I've also had plenty of folks who, uh, when I knew them, they were scrappy and poor and uh, starving artist types. We're among the handful of very lucky fortune people who had a hit at some frame super messed up their state of mind creatively socially and otherwise had a difficult time relating to their friend situations had a difficult time meeting new people aren't sure who's a fan trying to get a photo with them aren't sure who wants their autograph or their connections or their money uh really difficult creative space to be in to try to follow up something like that as to what comes next because now i got all this pressure i'm no longer just obscure and able to experiment freely there's a lot of like what's the follow-up to the grand hit of the mm-hmm. whatever and it's a complicated non-trivial space and it's not to say people like shouldn't want that first world problem to have but it is also a problem. But it's still it's legitimately a problem. Legitimately yeah. a real problem that people have of when we when we skip on that publishing layer of mitigating the risk, which avoids the, the lows being as low, but also avoided the highs being the highs. Instead, we get occasionally someone who makes way more money than a normal one person, two person size team, whatever could have. And they wind up in just a very bizarre space of like how to responsibly do something with that and how to not screw it up next. And it's just a very bizarro uh Complicated thing again. We don't talk like I don't know. Occasionally, people write articles about like the complexity of that and the depression. Sometimes people spiral out of or just like weird disconnect socially and so on. Um, but it's a thing. Uh, it's true. Um, Nobody realizes it because they'll think, oh, just because you're successful at something or because you own this business that you're making tons of money. But you have to also pay for all that that's happening. Yeah. And people don't fully understand that. It, it's weird that they don't. I'll talk to people and be like, yeah, guys, they made tons of money. They, they, all these people did. The business did. The game did. But that's to fund all the people who made the game. That's to fund how the business is surviving. That's to fund the food. Like, there's just so much behind the scenes. Yeah, every now and then I'll get some, some jerk who will email me and be like, well, well, where does my dues go? I hope it's not to your bank account. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm paying my trainers. I do everything above board with lawyers and pay my taxes. I'm running a business. I have a lot of opportunity costs in like my 23-year career in industry. Um, I'm personally training and meeting with these people. But some people have the mentality of like teachers shouldn't get paid, in which case I say, fine, go out there and get them. Uh, don't have a teacher. But like, this is a thing. Like you would pay for piano lessons or like you would pay for someone's expertise in their field to be your personal advisor on a thing. And yeah, but very much there's a lot of uh, ambiguity from the outside because people come in from a consumer's perspective of like, all they ever see is 
like I say, a fan magazine or buying a product off the shelf. And they don't really, they're, they're, uh, we, my, my friend, Tiffany, uh, say friend, double colleague, she works in the indicate and within IG Los Angeles, but like a, a nonprofit board in the course in the latter case, but like, she talks about what I call the fourth four problem where at EA, they were like, okay, we had like our command and conquer floor. We had like our medal of honor floor. We had our like boom blocks, whatever different teams are going on at even time in this big old studio, uh, jammed at across the walkway and whatever. Uh, and then the fourth floor was like the principal's office. And it was a bunch of people in suits who were very serious. And there was a certain attitude. Like mm-hmm. if you walk around there, like I might get fired if I say the wrong thing. Like these are important moneyed people. And part of what happens is that fourth floor is invisible to most of the teams. And what are they doing up there? But without them, the rest of that studio doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. The work that they're doing on outreach, on sales, on funding, on all kinds of other stuff and machinery, on recruiting, et cetera. Without that, the rest of doesn't exist. But part of what happens is three to five of those people find each other and they're like, Josh, you're a great level designer. Tara, you're a good programmer. Jess, like, man, you really got this other side of the process. Let's, let's get together. Let's go make our thing. And they don't get anybody off the fourth floor. None of them have an idea what goes on to get things in front of customers, to message, mm-hmm. to productize, to like do all these other bits and pieces of the process. Or they're like, well, we'll figure it out. We're smart people. And they might be smart people. But it's a bit like the lawyer problem of like, you're a smart person, but there's reasons why people spend like eight years in school studying about what the word shall means in this state. Mm. These are things people dedicate their entire life to doing better than you're doing it in the same way as you are in code or in art or in writing or whatever. And if you're not willing to wear the business hat, you've got to find somebody else who does. Uh, at Indicate, we kept calling this just because partly they parted recently when kind of a high profile, not in a negative case, but as people knew the case, there's mm. a lot of JWs in the world who haven't found the Rami. Uh, who haven't found a partner who's like out there hustling, giving talks, being visible, being the lead singer while they are hacking, doing design. Again, Rami's also like a technical person, a good designer, a smart person does not take anything away from him, but he obviously has a different set of hustle and skills than JW who's given like one amazing talk on game juice. Don't get me wrong, but has otherwise enjoyed, like I don't want to be out there on the stage under the spotlight all the time necessarily. And for many people who, like I say, in home team, they want to work on games. They want to do their craft. They want to build stuff. And I essentially started to become at scale, their distributed Rami, who's out here doing this sort of thing and being on YouTube constantly and making podcast episodes and networking and going out to events and stuff to help so they can just keep doing their thing. Because without that, without a fourth floor, none of the rest of that process can function, exist mm-hmm. or sustain. No, I agree. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad we, uh, we talked about that because that's something that I think we should talk about more in the industry the real stuff that's happening behind the scenes. So I love to ask people, what is, what is your experience in the industry? So that way people can learn, Hey, this is really how it is. Not what I've, you know, watched a video and will write or some of them made it big. It's like, yeah, they did. But like, there's also a smaller side to it where you just get your little job and you just do what you love to do every day. And life is good. There doesn't have to come with like fame or glory or something bigger well, than that. One of my favorite examples for this, and uh, I've, I've mentioned several else of my stuff at this point, I guess I will make this one episode of my channel too. So I don't mind. I'm like using a whole bunch of stuff, but it came up last week, a lot during the indicate thing. Uh, I, I got into it cause I want to make my games. That's why I was making games as a kid. I like, I had ideas. I want to make the games. That seemed fun. Do my thing my way. And then when I got into the big old giant company, we were on a bus going to like a tour demo of like different teams showing off their stuff. It's kind of some team morale, rah, rah, rented out of theater. EA's got money. And a person on the bus I was chatting with, he had a like much more traditional engineering background. He worked on deep network backend stuff. Mm-hmm. So like he's why Lord of the Rings multiplayer and Command and Conquer servers never went down. Like he made sure that stuff was like load balanced and optimized and smart and handled disconnects seamlessly and just like really clever about lag re- redu- uh, reduction, whatever. And he was like, yeah, in, th- in high school, 
He was part of the theater group. He loved the theater group. He loved being part of that team. Loved making something bigger than himself happen. However, he didn't want to be out there memorizing lines, acting under the spotlight, giving the play, moving the lights, calling the shots as the director. He loved to be the person who, between scenes, ran on dressed in all black, moved the furniture in the way exactly he was instructed, went back off scene, and the stage is set up for the next people. And he would go home at night and sleep happy he did his part. He made it happen. He was a part Mm -hmm. of that process. None of the stress over, was this the right play we picked this year? Did I give a particularly compelling performance that night? does not want to sweat those problems. And mm-hmm. so same thing of like, he goes to work. They're like, hey, make these servers work better. And he's like, I'm on it. He does that. Was it the right game to make? Not his problem. Did they do a great job on the design calls? Doesn't care. Doesn't want to sweat that. Wants to get paid, do his part, feel good about it. He yeah. solved his puzzle, go to sleep, wake up the next day. <laughs> and like, there's a certain respect for like, oh, that is a different type of human being wants a different thing out of it. And then the way of like, again, like, I'm so glad that there are places in the world where people like who really want to deeply specialize on being the hand animator can find their place and be like, I'm part of an enormous, amazing mm-hmm. production. We had an alumni from our group, uh, Remy LaPointe. He's uh, like, uh, I think, non-technical undergrad, I think with a physics degree or something. He joined our group, led some projects. He also went out there and did some like other side hustles, jams, other things he could do, connect to communities and so on. Got an opportunity. Now he's with like Ubisoft as an animation programmer. He came back as a guest speaker for our group and told the story about how like, yeah, I mean, frankly, what y'all are doing in Home Team feels more like what he pictures game development. We're like, People are designing stuff, making stuff, doing things. Mm-hmm. His job now, day to day at Ubisoft as an animation programmer, is like he never even runs the game. He runs the, like the side test bed application to like make sure the character doesn't T pose between certain like things happening in the engine. And as long as the character doesn't T pose, he did his job. And it's just like a very different relationship to this work than, oh, what if we added this boss? Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we like had this power up that like, you know, ran out in 10 seconds? Mm-hmm. And like anybody in the team was kind of spitball and just do stuff. It's like, no, I've, I'm here for a very specific slice of expertise to become the person on the team that can go to with questions about this, make sure this problem is under control. And it's just such a different relationship to the sausage coming out of this factory than when he was leading like the ninja kangaroo combat melee game, which was like awesome and fun and he had fun doing it. But mm-hmm. it's just different from, I, I think, of, I, I, I think I've also used to have some of my lectures before us to like garage band versus an orchestra. Like mm-hmm. I'm here to play the flute on this Mozart song and I might be the best in the world at it, but that is a very different level of ownership than over like I'm the drummer <laughs> on mm-hmm. this. Like, you know, uh, we do, we do bar gigs on the weekends for our band. It's kind of fun. Yeah, we make up new songs all the time. Hey, what do y'all think of this? I was, I had this going the other day, you know, it's just a different energy. <laughs> really is it's a whole different like side of things. But again, you find what works for you and, and yeah. do it well. And yeah. Somebody, it. it's very much their thing, mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah, and that was also so my wife. She became a project manager, not in games, but in and in, in the ad agencies, uh, creative industry stuff. But like in college, uh, we were at the same grad school where I was also doing like pinball research and technical game design examples and connect research and whatever. And she figured out like she was talking to her grad advisor about, man, on these teams, I personally don't particularly like doing the level design or placing objects or modeling stuff or doing code or whatever. I really like coordinating people. And the grad advisor was like, that's a job. And she was like, what? And it's like, yes, that is absolutely. People need producers and project managers. The whole thing is like their expertise is I talk to people who won't talk to each other. I help make sure stuff is getting done. I help make sure there's parity between people who are looking at the budgets and the finances and the spreadsheets and the schedules and people who are doing the things reliable to that. And like, yes, that has been a career ever since. And Um, it's not always an easy job. Like being a leader is a tough thing. Like you can read books and books about it, but you really have to connect with your team and really lead them and take handle anything that comes your way. And it's not for everyone. Yeah, I was a business minor and occasionally there were jokes among the business school about how easy the workload was by comparison to what like 
the petroleum engineers and the mechanical engineers and the math people and for that matter, even like the creative writing people were stressing out and mad at each other and critiquing and other crying and just like the difficult stuff to grapple with versus the business kids were like, I don't know, like I, you know, I did my assignment and like the numbers add up in my balance sheet. Um, but I feel like in a lot of our cases, we realized like what they're really counting on is that that extra bandwidth we have was because we need to be founding organizations on campus. We need to be running a business on the side. We need to be fitting in work and other things and like connecting and networking professionally. And like there's stuff they cannot teach you through like do exercise three on page four of chapter two. It's got to be go out there, do stuff, make some mistakes, figure out how you can do it recoverably, talk to people, meet people. And they needed you out there doing stuff, being at stuff, becoming a founder of the organization, leading, being a president, this, that, and the other. Because without that, like, that's the only way you're getting a feel for that stuff of mm-hmm. directing the crowd and handling miscommunication issues between people. And those are things that, again, like a home team scale, unfortunately, like everyone's there. They know it's a learning context. They're all there to cooperate, work on each other's challenges, stuff. But there's very much a human like issue of, okay, different people want different things out of this. How do we fit those pieces together in a way that helps serve everybody's needs as best we can. And this is a thing that is obviously very different at the scale where, because it is all people here to learn, doing it for fun. If it's not fun for them, they won't do it. Uh, you're not, you don't have the thing of the workplace of like, you're doing this because I'm paying you for your time. And if you don't do it, you're fired. There's none of that. There's no bossing each other's around. There's no, I say, do it like this, I do it like this dance exactly the way that I say but the dynamics are very different of like, okay, well, what does this person want out of it? They really want to get a chance to try out this certain set of skills. Can we fit that over here? Okay, they want to do writing stuff. This game wasn't going to have a big writing component, but we could add like some scrolling text up front. Maybe we can work in some VO. If we kind of ask around someone wants to record some VO and you look for ways to create opportunities for people to try stuff in a way that like really is still a useful skill regardless, because often what people want, even in a workplace, is some sort of respect for their autonomy, opportunity for them to fulfill and you know stretch their creative limbs a little bit. Uh, but it is a different balance and a different equation from a leadership perspective of I'm running this project to create opportunities for others to try to help slot them in to do what they want to do versus, you know, we figured out that the the world wants Mega Man 8. It should look a lot like Mega Man 7, but better. Of course. Here's why and how we're going to do certain things a certain <laughs> way. And it's just a very different kind of thing to be to be beholden to, like, like the Marvel license or whatever, of like they've got constraints of, People want it a certain way. And I, I had a few just secondary connections to a friend of mine or two went off to work for EA Sports and Madden and those kind of things. And they would even talk about like how Tiger Woods Golf, they would try to innovate the swing or something and super annoy people who liked the old way because they got really good at the old way. And yeah. people critique these games for not changing more every year. But every time they change anything, it upsets a whole yeah, bunch of fans. It's crazy. Who spent a year getting world class at FIFA or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now we're like, no, this is wrong because I've, I've, like, it's, you know, you play an FPS game and they suddenly like rebalance it and you're like, you just whoa, throw away whoa. my time yeah. i'm really yeah and, and it's just it's a very tough balancing act to deliver on it's a different set of design constraints than you know once upon a time there was a alien stealing motorcycles is one of our games from home team that i'm just speaking out because it was fun but yeah having a goofy idea and doing something with it yeah that's the fun of games though you can create whatever you want and make a game out of it it doesn't mean the stress of like oh my business is gonna crash because my game is not fun it's like, no, like just sometimes just make something that's just for fun. It's a level of investment thing. You know, it's, it's a yeah. thing of like, and it, it's just the other perception of like, oh, you know, if I could fund this and I could do anything. And the opposite is true, right? The more money you connect to something, the more you have to recoup from it. Mm-hmm. The more pressure is on it. You do not have the same flexibility to do whatever you feel like if it is a project with millions of dollars behind it or even Especially if it's not your dollars. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, yours yeah. And yeah. But if it's not, which most likely it's not going to be. Yeah. yeah. You gotta, I've all, yeah. And I've, I've done some work where it was something where like, me and my coworkers would be like, yeah, I don't know. This isn't what I would do for this project. But, you know, the person funding it is getting to call the shots to try their thing their way. 
and we're here to mm -hmm. help them. If there's downsides, we're going to do exactly what they say they're going to see. They get to learn from that feedback process. That's what they're paying for, partly. Yeah. And this is a different relationship to the work than if it's my time, my hours, my dollars at risk, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. Indeed. <laughs> I can't believe we've been talking for like three and a half hours. Yeah. Well, so part of the secret here is so when I help run Indicate stuff, I'm our alumni lead for that. And I was on Zoom for over 110 hours over an eight-day period. Um, so very much, I'm just in the like, talking to people continuously about game development things and have lots of stories on quick draw <laughs> because this is part of what i do but yeah yeah you killed uh, it i'm like like <laughs> it didn't even feel i'm looking at the clock i'm like is it really 341 what <laughs> so i've got an hour training call in like an hour 15 uh one of my youth clients which is a whole different fun subject in itself of my i do some work with like 10 year olds and i've worked with people as young as four and it's just a very different set of constraints and i the attitudes mm -hmm. and ideas and adults have i love it although again oh man i also want to ramble about youth stuff sometime um, there's such a different set of constraints where like mm -hmm. their imagination will fill in for the things that they aren't ready to do they yet. must have really like, cool ideas. Oh yeah. Well, so yeah. Uh, just like to a degree where like adults, we, until it's working, like we're very critical of like our standard mm -hmm. is how it should look, how it should be. It's not done yet. It won't work for a kid with an active imagination. Like it can kind of barely be there and they'll be like, it's done. And the same way as like they have an action figure. And it's a lie because like, mm -hmm. that's all they need. That's doing the rest up here. And it's just such a wildly different phrase, stage to work at also because they have none of this pressure grownups do about like this Money. has to be my career or it's not worth it. Mm. Right? Like why do anything if it's not paying me? Um, and, and, and what a, what a different thing that is where, uh, there's a whole other thing on its side, but just like the, the degree to which some people have that attitude about it. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you thought like, Hey, I won't play basketball till, till like people will pay tickets to watch me. You're never going to get good enough people to watch you. You know, there's something you said for don't get exploited, obviously, but you also have to practice like mm -hmm. singing before you're professional at singing. And there's a stage where some people hit a wall because they're like, well, I won't do it until I'm hired to do it. And I'm like, I don't know who you think you're competing against for that yeah. job, but they've been practicing while you've been refusing to like just do and do it on your own time for yourself to mm -hmm. no, get, 100%. For, get the rough stuff out of your system. It's like, you got to put in the work. Otherwise it's just words. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, just just talking about it, just ideas, which is, mm -hmm. you know, room for that too in the world. Yeah, nothing wrong with that, yeah. That's <laughs> when you start complaining is when I'm like, oh, hold on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and that, uh, very much we've got our, our thing about, like, I there's an old panel on... I want you to come up with a little small challenge for the uh, listeners to do after the podcast. It could be about anything. Ooh, yeah. Um, let's see. Well, so this is one of my... This is going to be slightly tricky. So often, with, like, my... Part of what's tough, right, is that past the very most fundamental level, advice has to be tailored to a person as That's far as like, what are their goals, what's their background, where are they trying to get? Otherwise, you wind up with really, really generic stuff. Ooh, I got like a <laughs> weekly tips email list that tries to be generic. Let me try to figure out what I can take as a challenge here. Hmm. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, here's what I'll say. I'll say that there are... Part of why it's valuable to work with other people is because they will see problems that we don't. They everyone comes to a different background of values and stuff, and it doesn't mean that like we have to do everything that they say, but they're seeing different issues than we do. And so I will say for people who've only ever worked alone, if not through home team, my approach at home team game dev, there's some approach out there. Find a way to branch out from doing it on your lonesome. Uh, find a way to work with other people um, and see it not just as like I want to take myself to the next level, or not just like I'm gonna plug some else into my process, but really like, here's a chance for us to learn together. Here's a chance for us to do more than either of us could have done alone. Here's the thing for us to, in many cases, like if you can do a thing alone, you can create opportunities for others 
by like helping them be a part of that. And they would like to be a part of like getting a chance to be involved in that. And, and I would see that sometimes out of people who are pitching leading projects. Again, it's something where like they could in home team make this game alone, not as well, but they could. So they don't really need the team so much as it's, a, it's an opportunity to help give other people a shot at like trying thing that makes them happy, trying to their, their thing their way, giving them fully way over music's going to sound how you want it. Level's going to look the way you want to try it. And so I'd say, you know, if you have the proficiency to do things alone already, look for ways to try to help create opportunities for others to get involved with it. And, and obviously the, the big caveat and complications around this part of why home team exists with our membership agreement and legal processes and so on is because like our stuff is all freeware from the get-go. It's built into our agreement. No one's selling our stuff. People retain their own rights to their own thing. We have people compose music for our games and then go sell it on iTunes. Great. Go sell your own music on iTunes. Oh. We don't own it. Where this stuff also gets really sticky and tricky and I respect is part of what keeps some people out of teams is because they can't afford to pay people who are worth paying at it and or don't know how to form a proper arrangement and agreement in place to work with somebody else without either side being concerned am I getting somebody profiting mm-hmm. off of my like labor, et cetera. And while at the same time, they're trying to practice the skills. So anyway, that's part of why structures like mine exist. And it's also part of why people pay thousands of times more percent to go to universities for the same things, to be on student teams, to practice it. Sometimes the answer might be jams if it fits in someone's life, but it is, I will say, get out of the solo stuff and then look for a way to work with collaborators. There's so many advantages to working with collaborators in terms of, like I said, the moving the refrigerator thing. You suddenly figure out the stuff that felt lonely, isolating, struggling, difficult is way easier to sustain when you're not having to do all yourself. It's good for your morale when a home team, when people wake up and see like my game's better because someone else just checked in the change overnight that like it does cool stuff now that I didn't do before I last looked at it. Just helps keep us awake and going and uh, uh, positive about it. And also there's just this fun. I figured out early on when I started doing collaborative stuff, even commercially on iPhone era, when I did, I did about a dozen iPhone iOS games and apps and stuff. But every time I'd mix up my collaborators and it was like each time I'd produce very different output from working with somebody different. And it's suddenly it stops being like, I'm just, you know, doing the same song. I know how to play on my guitar. And suddenly I'm like doing something very different because I'm working with a talented artist and doing something very different because working with somebody who's got like a different set of skills on a technical side, doing something mm-hmm. very different. And suddenly my own work got more interesting to me from the variety that came from plugging it in connecting it with other people as opposed to just trying to keep retelling my own things slightly shinier, getting at what seemed to me the direction to move in. Mm-hmm. So involve other people if you can and obviously home team exists <laughs> yeah. we try to be an answer to that but uh i'm not the only pe- person in the world trying to do something like this uh like i said i just happen to think ours is the best approach to it <laughs> i mean i i agree i really think it is one of the best things out there for game developers and great challenge i think that's gonna help a lot of people branch out and learn to grow with teams and not be a solo debate can, can i throw in one quick plug of a thing that is uh related We'll sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so home team actually just recently passed a ton of milestones. I say roughly simultaneously, plus or minus a few weeks or a month or whatever. We just got our hundred thousandth uh, YouTube subscriber, hundred thousandth podcast download, hundredth home team game released. Five years as an organization for Apollo Group, that's our main community. One year for Outpost, that's our secondary community. I've also given. I think it added up to about our two thousand five hundred hours of one on one training client time with our clients as part of celebrating all of those milestones at once. Ish. I started a new weekly email list where I'm just sending like examples of stuff I worked with clients on, common questions I've answered and stuff. That's gamedevtraining.com, G-A-M-E-D-E-V training.com, all one word. Take people to sign up for that. It's a free list. It's weekly emails. And sometimes like the PS, I'll link back to like one of my more popular YouTube videos or something that came up in one of my extra credits episodes or whatever. But it's just trying to help share that information to get more people out there started in a basis that kind of like fits this way of thinking that's reflected from lots of different ex- real people's examples they've, they've run into and had bumped up against to try to help spare more people from winding up on a track that you know, feeds them off into a 
into a uh, canyon as opposed to like there's more rail this direction at least you got more options open up to you and so it's just a weekly thing i'm working on doing for the next year at least of writing an email every week to try to help share this information to people just trying to get started in a better way gdc a long time ago where it was like four different world even at the time world famous indies is like very successful people no need to name check the four but like they were like very particular people like you've heard of their games and the final question on the panel is like what should indie games be and like each one basically described their game that their studios do in a way that's like obviously that's why they're building that particular game mm-hmm. like they're not disagreeing with each other they're saying i think games should be like this so we're putting this out into the world and and very much i think a whole lot of energy gets tied up on saying how someone else should tell their story how they mm-hmm. should do star wars different how or why avenger should be other than it is and i'm like you have ideas for stories in 2020, there are other ways that you can go make your thing. It will not be on the same budget scale, obviously. Yeah. But I think the answer is like, okay, well, they had their choices and their set of constraints to make their thing in. The best argument for something should be is, look, I made a thing. Play it. See it. What do you think? Here's the thing we can talk about. We can disagree about that. Yeah, there you but go. when you have a disagreement about how it should be, okay, fine. Now you go make your thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree 100%. You're speaking <laughs> my word, dude. I, yes. Oh, man. We'll, we'll change the world little by little. You're going to get them. Got to fix it yes. all. Yeah. <laughs> Start with video games. Yes. All right. That's how I'll do it. Yeah. All I'm right, going to go cool. grab some foods before my hour work call thing. Thanks for chatting today. I'll, yeah, thanks, no I'll do a pass. Uh, we should probably also then, like, likewise, have some sign off ish for both of us, because especially if it winds up on my channel too. So, like, I'm Chris Dunn of HomeTeamGameDev.com. HomeTeamGameDev.com slash podcast is where our 160 some episodes are for our particular set of things, where I guess we might also splice this audio for that too. We shall see. We shall see. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, right, I guess I can throw in the URL for the yeah totally. Podcast. It is for those listening. Where is it? Nice. Which if it comes up on my stuff, I'll post a link to that in the description. Yep. And we're all set. Excellent. Thank you, man. I appreciate Thanks, you KB. taking your four hours of your day and uh, yeah, time will spend. Talk to you soon. Yeah. See you around. <laughs> well, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can find all GameDev.TV courses at courses.gamedev.tv/courses or in the show notes with a ten percent discount. Get started with your game development journey today. 